Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Kanzano with The Baldface Truth. thinking a little bit about the NIL space, and I wrote about it today at johnconzano.com. I had, I, I had a lot of fun this morning. Like, I, I just, I woke up as I as I am these days. Say hello to my children. Uh, thank the good Lord that I'm awake for another day and that he's given me another day. Uh, and then at some point in the morning, I also say hi to Anna. Don't, uh, don't at me. Uh, but at some point, I get to uh, sit down with my laptop and start writing. And I'm loving what I'm doing at johnconzano.com. If you are subscribed already, you know that. You know I've found my joy. You know that I am in a sweet spot and in a rhythm. And frankly, like a lot of you who enjoy what you do, it doesn't feel like work. I'm working, but it doesn't feel like it. I'm loving it. Uh, But I wrote today about a couple different things that I want to talk about off the top of the show today. I wrote uh, in particular about uh, former Washington State star and NFL fullback Jed Collins, who joined us. Uh, I think it was about eight, nine days ago on this show. And he's now the president of the Cougar Collective, Washington State's NIL entity. And you heard him come on the show and you heard him talk about, like, you know, the the difficulties of NIL. Like, you know, do we love how it's been launched? Do we love how NIL is being handled? Probably not. But this is the game that college athletics has decided to play in and is forced to play in. And so everybody's trying to play it the best way they can. There are a bunch of collectives Oregon's got one called Division Street. Oregon State has one. Uh, Nobody at Oregon State will give me the name of it, but I know they have a collective group that is working, and I'm working on writing something about that as well. But Oregon and Oregon State have their collectives. Uh, UCLA's got a collective. Arizona State has the Sun Angel Collective. But Washington State has the Cougar Collective. And Washington State knows that it's not going to raise millions and millions and millions of dollars and be able to compete with some of the universities that have these huge war chests. But Washington State is focused on retaining their athletes and trying to get, uh, you know, use their dollars inside this collective to reward the sophomores, juniors, and seniors who stick with Washington State and stay in Pullman. Um, and, you know, they're, they've launched this recurring subscription model. Arizona State's doing the same thing. And I guess the idea is strength in numbers. If you can get a percentage of your alumni to give 20 bucks a month, 50 bucks a month, 100 bucks a month, suddenly you can assemble a couple of million dollars that you can uh, funnel to the athletes. And, and Washington State's even calling it pay to stay. That's their mantra. They're, they're trying to reward loyalty, which I think is a great idea. But... Cameron Ward, who we've talked about a lot in this show, is Washington State's quarterback. And he's an interesting study in this NIL space because he's a gifted player. Uh, he played in the wing T offense in high school. Anybody knows the wing T knows it's not, not a great passing offense. So Cameron Ward uh, had only one scholarship offer after high school. It came from the University of Incarnate Word, which uh, plays in a 6,000-seat stadium and plays in the FCS division, much like Portland State and Montana State and others. Um, Cameron Ward won the Jerry Rice Award as a freshman. 
That's the FCS Division Award that goes to the National Player of the Year. It's kind of like the Heisman Trophy for the FCS. Then as a sophomore, he threw 47 touchdown passes and threw for 4,600-plus yards. So his head coach, Eric Morris, at Incarnate Word, was hired by Washington State to be the offensive coordinator, and Eric Morris is bringing Cam Ward with him to Pullman. So I have no doubt Cameron Ward was going to Pullman regardless of whether or not he got an NIL deal. Like, he wasn't staying at Incarnate Word over Washington State. He wanted to get in the Pac-12. But Cameron Ward got $90,000 in NIL endorsement package from Washington State's collective. That included cash. It included an apartment. It included a lease for a GMC truck from a dealership. It included airfare for Ward's parents from to get from Texas to Washington State football games. And, you know, Washington State's feeling pretty good about Cameron Ward being there. Uh, Ward told me on media day, you know, I, I said, is the truck leased? Like he's driving around Pullman. He said, who said, you know, hey, if I have a good season, maybe they'll give me the truck. So I think that, that players, the mindset of athletes has shifted some. We don't have to love it. And we can roll our eyes at it. And, and a lot of us do. But I also think there are some states out there, especially in the South, in the SEC country, that are maneuvering to give advantages to their universities to allow them to do some things that, you know, lawmakers in Washington and Oregon haven't yet caught up to. So I'll be really interested to see if the universities here in Oregon and Washington begin to lobby lawmakers to help keep them competitive in the NIL space, uh, the universities and their collectives. I think it's really interesting. Keep an eye on that. Second thing, you know, we talked a lot about this yesterday. I talked about the big non-conference matchups that the Pac-12 has uh, on its on its uh, early part of the season. But I took a little different approach today when I wrote about it at johnconzano.com. I only wrote about the 10 remaining Pac-12 universities. I threw out USC and UCLA for now. Like, it's important. Like, USC and UCLA have some important non-conference games in the early part of the season. Like, UCLA, UCLA is playing a cupcake schedule. They play Bowling Green. They play Alabama State. They play South Alabama. Chip Kelly's going to be 3-0 and in those games. Like, it's a cakewalk. Um, USC plays Rice, Fresno State, and Notre Dame in their non-conference schedule. I, I still think it's important for USC and UCLA to win those games for sake of the conference. But I'm going to focus, I think, and I, and you tell me if I'm wrong, Like my impulse is to focus on the 10 remaining members because I feel like anything that USC and UCLA do this year is going to be assigned to the Big Ten Conference. Like People are going to go, it's the Pac-12. For now. So it's why I think Utah at Florida in week one, Oregon, Georgia, week one, Arizona, San Diego State in week one, Oregon State, Boise State in week one. Those are all important games for the Pac 12. It's important for the Pac 12 to show well and play well in those games. It's important for a number of reasons, the least of which is uh, the fact that you have, you know, a conference that had some embarrassing results last year. Uh, Pac-12 was 0-5 in bowl games. They lost games to Utah State. They lost games to Central Michigan. Pac-12 uh, was 3-9 and last year against the Big 12, Big 10, and SEC. The three wins, Oregon beat Ohio State, quality win, probably the highlight of the Pac-12 non-conference uh, for, you know, in the last couple few years. UCLA beat LSU. We found out later LSU wasn't that good, but still it was a good win. Stanford beat Vanderbilt. Okay, take it. It's an SEC team, but that's your three and nine. The other nine games they lost. It becomes really important, I think, for the Pac-12 to play well in week one 
in those four games. Now, I don't think Oregon's going to beat Georgia, but Utah can beat Florida. I, in fact, I, I think it's a must-win for the Pac-12. And Oregon State, you got to beat Boise State at home in week one. It would be a solid win for the conference, but it more importantly, it avoids the Mountain West getting out of the gates with a 1-0 record against the Pac-12. Because Arizona is playing San Diego State the same week. And the Wildcats are in a bit of a rebuild, and San Diego State is opening its new stadium, and the Aztecs are, you know, it's an audition for expansion for them. I mean, it's really dicey for the Pac-12 conference. Then comes week two, right? Arizona State, Oklahoma State. Dicey game for the Pac-12. But a win there by Arizona State really would help shift the narrative of the Pac-12. And Washington State in week two plays at Wisconsin. That would be a huge road win for the Pac-12 against the Big Ten. And I think Washington State is capable in that game. And then the third game in week two that, I, that I'm really focused on is Oregon State at Fresno State. Bulldog Stadium, tough place to play. Jeff Tedford at the helm at Fresno State. It's more like a loss in that game hurts the Pac-12 more than a win helps it. But you got to win that game in week two. Then comes week three, which I think is the biggest week for Oregon in the non-conference and Dan Lanning. They got BYU in week three at home. Cougars were Pac-12 killers last year. They were 5-0 and against the Pac-12. This is Oregon's most important non-conference game, and it comes at home. This is the difference between a 2-1 and start and a 1-2 and start for Dan Lanning in his, in his early tenure. Uh, it's a huge game for the Pac-12, as Oregon's got to beat the Big 12 entry BYU. Uh, another game that week that I think is important, Arizona's playing North Dakota State. Again, it's one of those games where... If you win it, you should win it. You are a Pac-12 Power 5 uh, team playing against a FCS power. But North Dakota State is really good. And if Arizona doesn't show up to play, they're going to get embarrassed. So keep an eye on that one in Week 3. And then Cal plays Notre Dame in Week 3. Um, Justin Wilcox, man, you, you, i I, I got to see Cal shine at some point. This is an opportunity. Cal is out Notre Dame and playing Notre Dame for the first time since 1967. Uh, that coming in week three. And then Washington has Michigan State in week three. Fun game for the Huskies. Comes at home against a dangerous Big Ten opponent. Kalen DeBoer's, you know, you know. let's see what his program's about early. But that's 11 games that I mentioned. 11 significant games. And I'm looking at, like, the upside, best-case scenario, the Pac-12 wins seven of those games. Like, maybe Utah wins at Florida. Oregon State beats Boise State uh, in week one. And then... Maybe in week two, Arizona State upsets Oklahoma State, and Washington State goes to Wisconsin and wins, and Oregon State wins at Fresno State. And in week three, Oregon beats BYU. Uh, Arizona beats North Dakota State. And let's say Washington uh, beats Michigan State at home. That, that's a seven and four home run mark. I'll take six and five. I will accept five and six even because there are some brutal and dicey matchups. But keep an eye on this. If the Pac 12 only wins four, of those 11 games or fewer, I fear we're in for a repeat of 2021, which was dismal. I want you to leave it here. Chase Coda, University of Oregon football player, following in the footsteps of his dad. He joins us next. I want you here for it. You got the bald-faced truth statewide on the BFT Radio Network. University of Oregon will open at 
Georgia against the defending national champions. Lots to talk about this season. Among the things that I wanted to get at that was on my uh, to-do list was to interview Chase Cota, formerly at UCLA, now back in the state of Oregon, playing at the University of Oregon, following the footsteps of Dad, and he's joining us now. How's it, how's it been? How's fall camp been for you, Chase? Hey, man, uh, thank you for having me on, first of all. But, uh, no, fall camp's been great. Uh, practice seven today now, day eight into it. Uh, things are looking good. I think uh, we're installing things fast, and everyone's making good plays, and I think I think we got a, a good good future ahead of us. You've played for a variety of coaches, and, you know, you've been at UCLA, now Oregon. How's Dan Lanning doing? You can tell us. No, no, I, shoot, I love Coach Lanning. I like the energy he brings, you know, uh, having a really young coaching staff. It's, it's fun to be around, you know, there's a lot of, their humor is very relatable to us, and, you know, they know uh, kind of what's going on in our day-to-day lives as they're uh, very involved in a lot of similar things as far as social media circles and everything as us, and uh, I think that there's just a lot of good, good energy going around and a lot of positivity for sure, so. Now, I heard you. Yeah, I heard you guys did an Olympics recently, kind of a team-building, team Olympics thing, and included shooting. I saw some pictures on social media. Did you participate in that, or what was that about? Yeah, so right now we're still we're in the middle of our Olympics, so it's kind of whenever we have little off days or little periods of time where we can do some team-building stuff, we'll do some activities like that. So I know, yeah, the, the shooting was fun. We had our team. I'm on Coach Dillingham's team. I think we have eight or nine squads, but kind of whoever can uh, win it all in the end gets a bunch of prizes. So it's a fun little thing. But being able to sneak off and go to the basketball arena uh, was a really good time. And I know in the future we're going to go to the baseball field and have like a home run derby and everything. So it's, it's good fun to look forward to. I love it. That's like the superstars competition. Like who in basketball? Who could play? Who was good? Oh, man. I mean, shoot. I can name a lot of guys, but the, the obvious one right away was uh, the – the head women's coach, he came out and saw Tyler Nanny shooting. So he was supposed to be a basketball guy here than a walk-on football guy. So uh, so he definitely has that touch and was making a lot of free throws when we were out there. But I think there's, there's definitely a bunch of good hoopers for sure. We're talking to Chase Cota, University of Oregon football player. I know in high school, you know, you got you got a lot of pressure from people who said, hey, you got to go to Oregon, you got to go to Oregon. You chose UCLA. Um, there were people disappointed, but I, I think you know everybody understands you got to do what's best for you. What was that like at, at that time for you to to pick UCLA, and then you obviously now are, are getting the best of both worlds. You're getting to get both experiences because of the because of the portal. That that must be really nice. Yeah, no, it's amazing. I mean, coming out of high school, uh, yeah, like you said, I mean, I wouldn't even say it was like pressure. I mean, all that would really matter is my immediate family, and there wasn't pressure. So from that, I just uh, knew ultimately it was like I was kind of torn between a couple schools, and and then I was like, where do you ultimately want to go if I was a student? And I thought UCLA was the place I wanted to go, and I love Coach Kelly. And uh, so being able to do that and be able to get my degree from there this fall, but then be able to come back to Oregon and, it's definitely the best decision I made. Like, I'm so glad that it's not just I came home and went to Oregon and, like, took an easy route or anything. It's like, no, this is a hard route. This is the fun route. And I think it's definitely the best opportunity I had. And I'm just glad it happened to be two and a half hours away from home. So everyone gets to see me play, and I get to see everyone when we get free time. Uh, it's honestly, it's it's unbelievable that I get to live two two dreams in one kind of, like, college football twice. So it's amazing. Yeah, I think that's really cool that, you know, You'll, uh, you know, it's almost like there, there were probably in the generation before you, there were probably a lot of regrets from players who would go, hey, I wonder what would have happened had I gone here or there. But because of the portal, you get to do it. 
Uh, and you know what went into that decision ultimately for you? Like when you when you finally looked up and said, you know, I I I want to do this. I want to go back and get back in my home state. Yeah, I mean, before I was, uh, I knew even before the season, I think that it was going to be my last season. I was getting my degree, and it was either you know things work out very well and you can declare for the draft, or it'd be go go try somewhere else because you know I've been doing it there and. I was able to make an impact there for a while, but, you know, maybe my puzzle piece just didn't fit right, and uh, I think that I could have fit well somewhere else. So right when I hopped into the portal, I mean, first day, a bunch of schools reached out, but Oregon reaching out the first day was a big-time deal. And obviously, I knew everything was changing with place landing, and really, I mean, I, I, I wanted to take my time. I was in the portal for, for about a month, but and about halfway through, I was like, okay, this is what I think I want, but let's just keep gauging all the opportunities, and then eventually it was just crystal clear and in that day I, I realized it was crystal clear the next day i called the coaches and let them know just didn't want to waste any time after that we're talking to chase coda <laughs> university of oregon wide receiver your dad chad played at oregon nick aliotti talks about him as you know one of his all-time favorite players to coach and but oregon's a very different place now than it was when your dad played there i mean facility differences the stakes have changed you know, I, I bet Dad's eyes are kind of wide open seeing what you've gone through. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, shoot, they're they're the pioneers. His time making it to the Rose Bowl, they set the foundation for what it is now. And I mean, being a kid growing up here and seeing the evolution, I remember being real little watching like Kellen Clemens and those guys even, and seeing it like from then to now, from my dad's time to then, it's uh, it's uh, it's pretty unbelievable. And you know, just to be able to come back to my home state and. Uh, Growing up as a kid, you know, I wanted to be a duck when I was a little guy running around the yard. So being able to do that is, is amazing. I know my dad loves it, and he loves everything that's evolved around here, too. He thinks it's the coolest thing ever, you know. No tradition is kind of cool tradition <laughs> with all the, the cool things going on around here, sports science-wise, uniform-wise, uh, you know, tra- even, like, training-wise. It's just, just a lot of, lot of open-minded perspectives, and uh, it's a beautiful place to be. I want to talk about the three quarterbacks, and as a receiver, you get a chance to work with them all. But you know, I know there's other guys that are in camp. But you know, let's start with Jay Butterfield. What does Jay Butterfield do well? Jay Butterfield, he catches the ball, and he knows. You know, I mean, I'm not going to say anything bad about him, but his feet—he's not—he doesn't want to run the ball, so he sits back there and he wants to be in the pocket and scan the field. And I think he's just got so like just soft touch, like when the ball's in the air on a deep ball. It almost seems to always fall in the perfect spot, and I think he's just real comfortable. And he knows he knows he's got a great arm, and you know he's just uh, man been been growing. And since I've gotten here, I've seen him get better too. So definitely love Jay. Yeah, there's, it's interesting because as a receiver, you get a you get a, a chance to catch those balls, and that like there's a difference in you know one quarterback's ball to the other ball, and there's a difference between a right hander and a left hander, and in, in the rotation of the ball, but. And, you know, and I, I see the same thing in Butterfield. I, I, at spring game, I said he's got a little Joe Montana in him because it's all about placement and it's soft and it's easy to handle and it's in rhythm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the ball might come out even a little sooner, but then with more touch. So it's like you kind of get more time to read it in the air. But, no, I, I definitely I love his style of play. Let's go to Ty Thompson. What does Ty Thompson do well? Yeah, Ty Thompson, I mean, gosh, I, there's – you know, now seeing it and hearing everything about him being a five-star, there's no doubt that that was the case. He's so talented, like twitchy fast, too. With his size, it's, it's crazy to think, uh, like, the way he can move around the field. I think he's really smart, too. Everyone 
everyone's like, oh, man, he's gotten so much better since he's been here. You know, I didn't, I didn't get to see him last year, but I know he's, he seems very confident in himself, too, being a younger guy. I think he's grown into himself. And, I mean, really, ultimately, all three of them uh, – I mean, once we talk about all three of them, I feel very comfortable with all of them on the field. If any of them go down, I mean, next guy up is no downfall. So, that's that. Bo Nix has got the experience. He's been around a little bit. He obviously transferred in. He's a little more seasoned. He's played in some big games. What does he do well in your mind? Yeah, I mean, just what you said about him being seasoned and playing in big games and winning big games, too. Uh, you know, he's got that, that confidence and that leadership. I think he's just a natural leader. I can only imagine, like, being on Bo's Pop Warner team. You know, he's probably out there giving good motivational speeches and <laughs> moving guys around. I could see him even making audibles. As a young kid, it's funny. You just see a, a natural leader within him and a, a lot of confidence and just very smart and asking a lot of questions. Even as an older guy, just constantly asking great questions and really um, making a point that he's a guy who's going to be here in the building all day and he's a pro. And I mean, shoot, he's married now. Congrats to him this July. And, you know, he's really just uh, like, shoot, coming into his, his manhood and taking everything serious. And I, I see a bright future with him. You guys are going to go to Georgia in that opener. You know, are you are you talking and thinking about the opener? Are you, are you watching film yet on Georgia or does that stuff sort of happen when game week starts to really approach yeah i mean we haven't uh ran against like scout team georgia or anything like that yeah you know uh obviously talked about everywhere you are i mean we had openers against cincinnati my first couple of years and you're talking about the opener it's definitely i mean it's the first one on your mind but you don't want to put too much on it but yeah definitely been watching them on my own but <clears throat> as far as in our meeting rooms just watching a little bit definitely just focusing on us and, and beating the defense for now. It's really just RO versus RD, and that's all that matters. And then maybe next week we'll get a couple scout periods or something, but I really don't even know that's going to start. I'm just worried, shoot, we're day eight, probably around day 15. We'll start getting to that, but we'll see. Favorite class you took at UCLA? Definitely uh, art of musical production with uh, Professor Adam Mosley, who's an absolute legend, was at Abbey Road Studios in London. Back at the time when the Beatles were, were running things, he was a T-boy and got to work with Muse, Elton John, and some other crazy familiar names. And uh, I definitely think that he just hearing from a legend and really learning how to work behind the boards and stuff. Because I've been a big music guy my whole life, so I love production. I love playing guitar, bass, all that stuff. So definitely would have to go with that one. All right, if you're putting a band together with Oregon football players, is there anybody else on this band? Do you have a drummer? Do you have, you know, do you have do you have the uh, necessary people? <laughs> that's that's actually a really good question. Uh, I don't really know who can drum yet, but I've definitely I've heard some guys sing. I think we we could have a couple singers, but definitely just got to look for some long hair first and then from there find some some quirky <laughs> characters and see what we can build. <laughs> I love that. See, we could do a concert. There, there's an NIL opportunity somewhere in this. You know, you sell out a small venue and you guys are playing. Like, you know, come on. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I think I need to get it together while we can still make it a big deal while we're all here and have the spotlight on us as football guys. <laughs> I, lo I love that. Chase Coda is with us. All right, uh, you know, you, you're coming into this thing. You know, you're an experienced guy. You've seen some things. you played in some games. You've scored some touchdowns. Uh, you know, do you have a personal goal, a team goal, and how do those things mesh for you this season? Um, I mean, it's hard. You know, we're, we're so early on to – to really milk it down to what you think a team and an individual goal is. But I think, I mean, obviously, ultimately, everyone wants to win the Pac-12. But starting now, it's, it's really just making sure we get everything down and that we can execute everything at a high level. But 
gosh, I wish I could put wins and losses and stuff like that, but really just to be the best version of ourselves is all I can say now. Give me an idea, Chip Kelly practice. Is it different than a Dan Lanning practice? You know, we always hear about coaches being different. You've got that perspective. Yeah, no, Coach Kelly, his uh, I would say his was definitely a lot more um, pushing the tempo and kind of conditioning during practice outside of the actual team periods. Is where I feel like here at Oregon we're in team periods a lot more of the time and playing a lot more just like face football against the defense with everyone on the sideline. So definitely a different perspective. I think you can get conditioned faster maybe with Coach Kelly's program, but then here I think you're learning your football and being able to execute your plays at a higher level faster. But I think give or take, I don't I don't know how I would want to be as a head coach. Definitely try and be somewhere in the middle of the two, but I think both of them are great head coaches. Obviously I was with one for four years and didn't want to leave and then just found, found a new opportunity. I'm glad I picked this new style here for sure. Chase Coda with us. Before I cut you loose, um, you know, I want to ask you about music because you, you're into it. What's the soundtrack to your life if we're like, you know, we're we're picking a song. What's what's your what's your pick as the soundtrack to your life? Dang, at this very moment. Yes. That would be very oh I mean, I don't know if it speaks to me all the time, but right now I'm really, really in love with the new Steve Lacey song, Bad Habit. I think it's beautiful. So that's, that's a good beach vibe. It reminds me of Southern California and happiness, but then it's also a little little dark when times get hard, so I think it's a perfect soundtrack. I love that. Love the depth of it. All right, I'm going to let our listeners <laughs> listen to that song as we go to commercial break. Chase Coda, thank you for popping on with us. I'd love to get you back on during the season. Congrats on you know getting back to the state of Oregon. I think there's a lot of people excited to see you play and, and have some fun. Remember to have some fun out there. This is supposed to be the the most fun time of your life. So, uh, you know, it's good to hear you and good to see you out there. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, man. Chase Coda, good stuff there. Okay, I got to go to the song. All right, Steve Lacey, Bad Habit. Can we cue that up? Can you cue that up for me? Thought you were too good for me, my dear. Never gave me time of day, my dear. It's okay, things happen for reasons that I think are sure, yeah. Steve Lacey, bad habit. Thumbs up. Everybody thumbs up on that one. It's got a good vibe to it. So you get a chance to know what Chase Code is about. A little bit about him hearing that kind of music. You got the bald-faced truth. Later in the show, Marcus Lattimore, former South Carolina star running back in the SEC who had a devastating knee injury. Lattimore is living and working in the state of Oregon. What is he doing here? We'll talk to Marcus Lattimore later. I love that. Bad habit. Take you to commercial break. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Dana White, the president of UFC, he gave an interview to GQ. 
It was a video interview, and it was published yesterday. And he said he believes fighters get paid what they're supposed to get paid. The topic of fighter pay has been a big issue in MMA for years. Uh, I have covered MMA events over the years where I have seen low-level undercard fighters uh, who are just struggling to make a living thrown into the octagon and put in a position that uh, I don't envy financially because, uh, you know, it's a pyramid in UFC like a lot of industries uh, and that, you know, the, the, the UFC fighters who are uh, at the top of the sports league or that league make a bunch of money, but the a lot of low-level fighters never never make any money and, and uh, basically perpetuate the undercards that are valuable to UFC. UFC pays its fighters about 20% of its revenue. That came out during a lawsuit that was brought by from some former fighters against the promoters. Other sports leagues like the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, they share about half of their revenue with players. But those leagues are unionized, and those athletes collectively bargain. And so UFC fighters are at a disadvantage. They are classified as independent contractors, and it makes collective bargaining legally difficult. So they have tried several times to unionize. They have been unable to do it. Um, and so, therefore, the sport, I think, has got some trouble. Um, I think UFC is guilty of paying its athletes poorly. And and I think there are a lot of sheep in that league. And I, and I get it. There are a lot of young, hungry fighters that are in that sport that are trying to get uh, to the top. And they love the sport. They love to fight. They love, uh, you know, the, the, the combat sports. But if... If you are talking about selling out 21 events in a row, which they have, if you're talking about pay-per-view, if you're talking about the millions and billions of dollars that UFC is is worth, and you're talking about lawsuits that have been filed against the UFC as far back as like seven, eight years ago by former fighters who have claimed that the promotion is a monopoly, like they control the vast majority of the sports market share, UFC does. It locks fighters into very restrictive contracts. It's very one-sided. They don't let them to test their value on the open market. And look, we've been talking a lot this sports cycle about PGA Golf, LIV Golf Invitational, whether or not you know there's a monopoly that the PGA held, and and I think you know that whole issue is clouded by the fact that there is you know Saudi sovereign wealth fund involved with it, and we can debate back and forth on that. But I don't think it's disputable in UFC that like if we all believe that athletes. Like, we believe in free agency, and we believe that athletes should be able to go out and collectively bargain or, or, or find their worth. And we're going through this in college sports with the transfer portal and NIL. If we all believe in the spirit of that, I don't know how you could be against UFC fighters being able to collectively bargain with the UFC. Um, you know, there are other organizations. I'm sure they could go out and they could fight at, at different things. But UFC has spent a lot of money lobbying against laws that probably could have been dispersed back to the fighters, right? And and I just feel like Dana White coming out and saying, hey, look, this isn't going to happen in my time as UFC president is the wrong tactic to take. He should be talking about taking care of the athletes in his sport. He should be talking about paying fighters a living wage or paying them a wage that is fair relative to the profits that UFC is making. Like, nobody... Uh, discounts the value of the UFC brand and what what the UFC organization brings to the MMA world. Like, without UFC, the MMA world is probably not on mainstream TV. It's probably not sanctioned in a lot of states 
where fights are happening. So it does provide opportunities for fighters, but I think Dana White is treading into territory that we have seen the NCAA tread into, and we have seen the other professional sports leagues tread into and get slapped down and, and pushed back on. And so I do think that you're going to see the attitudes. We right, we're in this world and climate of shifting attitudes, and but I think you're going to see the attitudes shift a little bit. I'm not comfortable when I go, like I've been to a few UFC events, right? I'm not like a diehard fan. The mob mentality of it sometimes chaps me the wrong way, but I've, you know, I've been and covered these events, and I'm not comfortable when I go to those events watching some of the undercard fighters and talking to some of the undercard fighters who aren't well compensated for the contribution that they are making to the show that night. And it is entertainment. Like, the high-profile fighters are making money. And Dana White is saying he believes high-profile boxers are overpaid. He doesn't want. I think the fear that UFC has is you, you have this fear that the UFC championship-level fighters turn into boxers who are in control of their own payday. Uh, the, the fighters who fight in UFC are working under a UFC contract, and therefore they're, they're not going to go out like Floyd Mayweather and negotiate their own deal and get part of the pay-per-view gate. No, they're just working for UFC. So I think Dana White needs to be really careful here. I think there is a happy medium where Dana White could fairly compensate the fighters, especially those fighters who you and I don't know about, who are fighting on the undercards and you know just trying to scrap a little bit. Like I'm not saying that it needs to be a windfall, but I think he needs to take care of them in a basic way that you know we've seen other sports leagues make this mistake, and the NCAA is the worst example of it. They were just tone deaf when it came to the idea of compensating athletes, name, image, likeness. You know, they went to the mattresses trying to defend against the Alston case, and they lost it, and they had no backup plan. They had no ground to stand on. And Mark Emmert, the NCAA president, ought to be ashamed of himself because I think he ruined college athletics by taking a strategy that was so stubborn and ridiculous that it didn't leave the NCAA in any kind of position to lend oversight to that name, image, likeness conversation. So they were just lost. Uh, and when they lost the Austin case, the wheels came off. And states themselves said, "Okay, there's no NCAA oversight. We're just gonna we're gonna take the uh, take the lid off this thing and let athletes go out and and uh, welcome to name, image, likeness. And the market will correct itself and all that." So if you're UFC president Dana White, I understand why you don't want to give your employees raises or your contractors raises. I understand. He said, quote, these guys get paid what they're supposed to get paid. Who says that? Like, you're making what you're supposed to make? Like, let the market dictate that. If you are UFC and you're only sharing 20% of your gate with your, you know, with your fighters, like, you know, what are you without the fighters? Like, you might find that out one day if they're able to organize. So I think Dana White is treading into dangerous territory, foolish territory, and I think he sounds a little out of touch and maybe even a little bit um, I, I maybe a little bit unaware or ignorant to what else has happened in sports. Because I think the more you hear about this, right, we hear about pay with soccer players, uh, female soccer players wanting equal pay with male counterparts on the international team stage, right? Uh, now we're talking about WNBA teams that are sleeping in airports and want access to charter planes like NBA teams, like, these are all issues, and it goes back to the stuff like Sedona Prince posted during the women's NCAA tournament a couple of years ago that just exposed the NCAA for just being out of touch with what was really going on at these tournaments. 
like the more publicity this stuff gets, the more real it gets. And I think we're seeing the tip of the iceberg as Dana White, who has been on the show, you know, comes forth and basically just says, look, um, this isn't changing while I'm in my position. They get paid what they're supposed to get paid. Um, this is not how boxing got destroyed, right? Boxing didn't get destroyed because because fighters were able to negotiate their own deals. Boxing got destroyed because there was no uh, oversight and there wasn't one entity that was able to say, look, uh, here's our championship and let's make it a legitimate championship. UFC has that covered, but I think Dana White is being foolish to think that he can get away with keeping 80% of the revenue for UFC and having the fighters continue to show up. At some point, LIV Golf, WNBA, Women's International Team, United States Women's International Team on the soccer stage, at some point, the talent on the field, the talent in the arena, needs to be compensated fairly or the talent is going to stop showing up. Leave it here. you got the BFT statewide. To the bald face truth with John Gonzano on 750, the game. We got Big interviews coming up. Uh, I have Merton Hanks, the Pac-12's director of football, who is coming on the program here. Uh, I scheduled him about uh, 10 days from now to get on the show. I want to do that right in front of all the big games that are starting up. For those of you who already subscribed to me at johnconzano.com, you know I went through today and and uh, captured all of the uh, big football matchups in the non-conference. I, I got big plans in the coming days to do a whole bunch of deep dives on Oregon and Oregon State and the Pac-12 members, and I'm having a lot of fun with that. But uh, part of that is going to be Merton Hanks coming on the show. And I'm eager to see what the Pac-12 does in this round of media rights negotiations. I know you know there some people are probably exhausted with talking about things that have nothing to do with football and everything to do with kind of the business off the field when it comes to college football. But for me... This is an important part of being competitive, right? If these Pac-12 teams are going to continue to try to take steps to be more competitive in the major college football landscape, and let's be real, participating in the playoff twice since the inception of the college football playoff isn't enough. Getting to the championship game once, Oregon in 2015, it's not enough to say that you matter. But the table was set for all of this because of the lack of revenue that this conference had over years and years and years and years. And I talked about this, and I wrote about this, and I'm not saying told you so, but I was on this in 2016, 2017, 2018, as it started to unfold, and people were wondering, why isn't the Pac-12 competitive? Gosh, the West Coast football just not that good. Oh, gosh, they're just soft out there. They don't play defense in the Pac-12. It had nothing to do with all that. It had to do with the fact that the SEC programs – and the Big Ten programs in particular, were being funded at a higher level than the Pac-12. The conference was falling behind. I wrote a series on this in the newspaper in 2018. It was a four-part series. I focused on Larry Scott. I focused on the fact that he was the highest-paid commissioner in 
the Pac-12. I focused on the fact that the Pac-12 network expenses were mounting. It's now a $500 million uh, investment that the conference has made in having its own media rights and having its own little uh, network, and, and that's fine. But the ACC sold theirs to ESPN and made money on it. Uh, the Big Ten sold 60% of it to Fox and made money on it. Pac-12 wanted to retain total ownership of those rights, and they did so uh, at a detriment to their bottom line that was uh, really egregious. And And I think it's really sad to kind of look at what has happened to the Pac-12 conference and how far behind it has fallen. And and But we we knew it was headed here. And so it's really important, like this media rights stuff that we talk about and we focus on is important because – your program's recruiting footprint and their recruiting budget is contingent upon this kind of revenue continuing to come in. And when you give every SEC school $10 million a year more, let's just show that as an example because that's what was happening in 2015, 2016, 2017. The SEC programs were getting $10 million a year more. The Big Ten programs, by the end of that decade, were getting $20 million a year more. When you give uh, every SEC program a $10 million advantage over every Pac-12 program, what's going to happen over a decade? When you give a $20 million deficit, what happens over a decade? You fall behind. You stop being able to fund your program at a level. Rick Neuheisel talked to me about, you know, he wanted to just buy gloves for his players. And he was looking at, like, how do we make that work budget-wise, given that we don't have the money? And the SEC says, you just write the check, you buy the gloves, and everybody moves on. We're talking about paying your coaches more, which means you're going to retain your coaches. We're talking about being able to hire those million-dollar coordinators that the SEC beat everybody to in the last decade, which means you're going to get the best coaches and you're going to retain your coaches at a higher level than the Pac-12. Mel Tucker leaves Colorado for Michigan State. Why? Well, he doubled his salary, and he doubled his assistant coaching salary pool. It was a no-brainer Mel Tucker. Mike Leach to Mississippi State. It's a no-brainer for Mike Leach. He's doubling his salary when he goes to Mississippi State. So the SEC programs and the Big Ten programs were getting better coaching, better retention of those coaches. They had uh, recruiting budgets that were far uh, greater than the Pac-12 members. So what were they doing? They were going into California, and they were recruiting the best athletes from the state of California and stealing them from the Pac-12 conference. So all of that is going on. And amid that, you have you know everybody looking at Larry Scott flying around the country in his chartered plane sipping champagne and you know sleeping in the uh in the uh, luxury suite on the strip in vegas while his conference members were just dying the ad's were pissed the ad's were so mad and they felt you know disrespected by the fact that larry scott was was doing this so this stuff matters okay and you know it's great that espn comes to the pac-12 negotiation now with a full war chest. Like ESPN didn't spend any of their money with the Big Ten Conference. Everybody's celebrating that as a win, myself included. We had Bob Thompson, the longtime uh, executive with Fox Sports Networks, who came on this show and said, I, you know, I asked him, you know, how would you view that if you were the Pac-12? And he says, if you are the Pac-12, you are smiling uh, when you see that. If you're the Big 12, you're smiling. But the problem that the Pac-12 has now, because it's not, you know, I, I amounted it or... Uh, you know, equated it to, you know, it's not a grand slam by the Pac-12, but it's it's you got two runners on, you got Klyovkov at the plate, um, chance for a three-run homer here. But the problem that the Pac-12 has is that you don't have a another bidder in the room, not one that I can clearly see. 
And I wonder how that will affect how strong ESPN comes because ESPN has the advantage here. ESPN has the Big 12 waiting in a year. ESPN needs the Pacific time zone. But what the Pac-12 really needs is to create a second bidder in the room. And I don't know if that's NBC. I don't know if it's CBS. I don't know if Fox gets back into being interested in more Pacific time zone content. Uh, I don't know if it's one of the streaming services, Amazon or Apple. I don't know if it's Turner or somebody new to the uh, to the equation. But that's really the, the challenge that the Pac-12 has right now. They have got to maximize this at bat, this opportunity. And they have ESPN in the room in need of uh, ESPN Plus content. You have that $500 million pit that was the Pac-12 network that you know is sitting off to the side as an asset. This is the time to monetize that asset. This is the time to turn that back into uh, additional revenue. And that is the challenge for George Klyovkov, who previously worked at NBC Universal, previously worked at Hulu, previously worked at MGM Sports and Entertainment. He understands the value of the entertainment, the content, the assets. He sees things and has worked creatively with those entities in finding new paths to revenue. And that's where it's going to sit. And that's how we're going to judge George Klyovkov. Like, it was great. His first year, he kind of went around, he shook hands, he kissed babies, and made friends with all the athletic directors across the conference. But in the end now, you have this guy needing to very much uh, hit a a home run here with this at bat. Because if he doesn't, the Pac-12 is going to fall further behind. They're going to fall way behind the Big Ten. Because the Big Ten is going to get 70 to $100 million a year for every university in that distribution cycle. So if you're the Pac-12, you have got to keep the Big Ten and the SEC within view of that front windshield. And you got ESPN in the room. They have the assets to to get you there. But you have to create some sort of uh, bidding war over your content. And it, granted, it's been hard. We've talked about this, how difficult it is to sell a product that isn't performing on the field. But how do you perform on the field if you're not getting the revenue? So there is the dilemma And there is the cycle that the Pac-12 has put itself in. It has itself to blame. The university and presidents and chancellors went way too long letting Larry Scott run the show. But they've got to find a way out of this. They've got to get another bidder in the room. All right, hour number two is ahead. Marcus Lattimore is coming up. We'll talk with him. Anna will join us as well. You got the BFT. BFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. We have done some interviews that I think go beyond sports, right? I think I think it's part of what I love about this radio show that it often goes beyond sports. A guy that I've gotten to know a little bit in recent years is a wonderful example of this. Marcus Lattimore was a star football player for all of his high school career and college career at South Carolina. Played football for Steve Spurrier at South Carolina. Still holds the career rushing record for rushing touchdowns there. Ran for almost 1,200 yards as a starter as as a true freshman at South Carolina. His sophomore year and junior year, knee injuries. A knee injury his sophomore year that uh, ended his season prematurely. And then a devastating knee injury to his right knee against Tennessee in his third season at South Carolina. Dr. James Andrews, the legendary surgeon who did the surgical uh, repair of Lattimore's knee, 
called it the the worst knee injury that he'd ever seen. Steve Spurrier said that you know Marcus Lattimore tore every tore every ligament in his knee. Well, Marcus Lattimore is living and working in the Portland metropolitan area now. He's doing some amazing things, and I wanted to bring him on the show to talk about it. Joining us now, Marcus Lattimore. Marcus, how you doing, man? Well, the the sun is shining, uh, and, and I'm alive, and uh, I'm talking to you, John. <laughs> so how, how how could how could my day get any better? <laughs> I love that. I love it too because you know what I'm starting to hear from is people who are complaining about it being hot, and I'm not with that. Oh my goodness! <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Down south, I mean, like this is this is heaven for me. I mean, because right now in South Carolina, it is unbearable. It is miserable, and you got gnats flying in your face. So <laughs> give me this all day long. Yeah. You, so growing up there, like, you know, I grew up in you know a part of California that was warm, but it wasn't South Carolina warm. But give me an idea. How would you cool off on a summer day in South Carolina? <laughs> how would you cool off? Uh, that, 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 that is a uh, – that's an interesting question. Um Golly, I mean, we stayed inside. That's how we cooled off. <laughs> That's right. I mean, we stayed under the air conditioner when we could. But, I mean, you know, I, I will say this. Because we sweat in it and we practiced in it, man, it, it, it you, you really saw the, the dividends pay off uh, on the field against other opponents that weren't from the South. Because, I mean, after the first or second quarter, they just couldn't stand it. Um, and it's, it's really just too much. It it, it, it builds a certain type of person uh, growing up down there because it's, it's, it's different. It's interesting because I was looking at that today because Utah will play in week one. They'll go to Gainesville. They're going to the Swamp. Mm. And I was thinking, you know, the altitude of Salt Lake City, maybe a little advantage there, but – uh, give us an idea, because you played. You know, you that's a part of the country you're familiar with, and you know what it's like to play in those games. What will they be walking into in a few weeks as as they go into that game, other than just a football game? Yeah, well, Utah's tough. They're really disciplined, and they have a really good coach. And heck, I recommend that they practice outside. Number one for the next couple of weeks. But I mean, it's just it it's it's like you're walking in. You're swimming in moist air, um, you know, when when you're in it. And, you know, I highly recommend, like, warming up without shoulder pads on. Mm. I mean, as much as you can keep light until the clock starts, as much as, as, much as you can stay cool um, before the clock starts, because, it's, I mean, at the end of the day, it's dangerous, yeah. you know, really, because, I mean, Gainesville, Anywhere, any anywhere below, you know that 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 line of Maryland. It, it's it's so humid throughout that time that it's just it, it, it's hard to it, it, your, your legs become so sluggish. Yeah, and your legs become heavy. You know, so I mean, it's something that you really can't acclimate to. You just have to make sure that you have second string and third string ready to go because it's just something you're going to be exhausted particularly if you're coming from the west and you know i was in salt lake a couple weeks ago and it's hot and but but it's again it's dry heat uh you add that element of moisture in the air it's it's just really really difficult 
We're talking to Marcus Lattimore, former running back at South Carolina. You had, uh, we've talked to you before about the knee injuries you had at South Carolina and how that kind of affected your NFL career, but you have been involved in football since what, like the age of six? Like, when did you start playing? Yeah, I started at six years old. Uh, it, it's been a part of my life. It's, it's etched into who I am, and um, I, I can't get away from it, John. Here you are. Is this going to be the first season you're not with football, though? First season in, in, in 24 years that I have not been in, in, in the capacity of a team. Um, and, you know, I was trying to figure out, well, before the season even started, I started to get anxiety and, and, and you know, even thinking about not being on the sideline because it's just it's just who I am. And being a part of a team is who I am, you know. So, you know, the the way my mind works is, okay, I have this this new assignment in life. How can I figure out a way to integrate sports, athletics, that team component, that 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 feeling of, of, you know, being a part of something bigger than yourself uh, that that's etched in, into who I am, how can I integrate that into my new assignment? What are you thinking of doing? Yeah, I see you have a wellness camp going on. Is that going to be something that gives you that, that team aspect, that, you know, that health, that fitness goal? Because I'll tell you this, I, I think people in general struggle if they don't have a goal, if they don't have an event, like, you know, you know, they go into the gym, they go through the motions, or maybe they get away from the gym. But, you know, you, you're putting on a wellness camp that is uh, hosted by Morningstar Missionary Baptist Church. But give us an idea of what's, what goes into this camp. Yeah, it's been, a, it's been really uh, meaningful working with Multnomah County. I'm a, I'm a community health specialist for Multnomah County. Uh, I have a great team around me. Uh, we, uh, when when I say we, we, my teammates, you know, which is how my mind works. As, as we've been putting together this wellness camp, Roberto, Naima, and everybody else uh, that, that that's a part of the team with Community and Adolescent Health, uh, which is the program that I work under, and I work under chronic disease prevention. And, uh, you, you know, all of those things have interwoven into my personal family life, you know, with heart disease being a, a issue, sedentary lifestyles being an issue. Um, and and um, my, my work in specific is violence prevention. Uh, and, you know, when I think about violence prevention, I think about a healthy lifestyle. And, you know, we, we put our heads together and, you know, th this camp that will be on August 27th, we're going to have a lot of different it's going to have a lot of different components to it. Uh, we're going to have blood pressure checks. You know, uh, there's no secret that heart disease is the number one killer um, overall, but particularly in the African American community. Uh, we're going to have produce from local farms. Uh, we're going to have health education around tobacco, uh, monkeypox, which is something that's unfortunately gaining uh, a lot more traction in America. Uh, we're going to have vendors in the area of wellness and yoga and fitness demonstrations uh, all, all there from 11 to 2 at Morningstar Baptist Church. But not only that, I've been mentoring at a few local high schools and uh, still mentor at Lewis and Clark College uh, in Portland, Oregon, which was my pre previous work before I 
started as a community health specialist. Uh, we're going to have some coaches come and uh, speak about how gun violence has impacted that locker room. And, you know, un unfortunately, I hear the same story um, with every team that I've talked to about, you know, I was in the car or I saw it or um, coach gets a call at 3 a.m. and, you know, one of his players um, is in the situation that we've seen. And I, I think, you know, Portland Portland residents, it's no secret that, that, that gun violence has been on the uptick. Ted Wheeler, Mayor Ted Wheeler, he, he declared an emergency. And, you know, so it's a, it's an issue, but uh, we, we know from history that sports has always been a catalyst for for change and uh for people to uh the, the, for, for, for people to think about their decisions and um maybe do something else so marcus Lattimore is our guest the wellness camp uh will be held two weeks from tomorrow uh, Saturday, August 27th, 11 to 2. It's uh, The address is 4927 Northeast 55th Avenue in Portland. Um, Marcus, will you be there? I know you're going to have guest speakers. There'll be lunch. There'll be fitness exercises, blood pressure checks. Just It's going to be a wellness uh, festival that goes on. Will you be part of the speaking, or who's speaking? I will open, I will open it up. Um, I will definitely be there. Please come by and say hi. And McDaniel High School coaches, uh, Grant High School coaches, uh, both football and basketball, uh, uh, Jefferson High School uh, will, will, will all be present, you know, areas. I specifically work in the Cully neighborhood, so we definitely want to get McDaniel. And obviously the coaches experienced a lot of um, tragedies uh, that, 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 that he's had to be a part of. But, um yeah, I, I will be there. Please come come by and, and say hello. And um, yeah, it's, it, we're gonna have food. Uh, we're gonna have drinks. We're gonna have uh, music, and we're just gonna have a have a good time together. And, and you know, I see it as a way, you know, particularly for the high school coaches and players. You know, like just to stand in solidarity before the season starts. Um, and, and, and you know, when, when they, I, I know they, I know you gotta be violent on the field, but off the field, uh, protect each other. Marcus Lattimore has been kind enough to stick around for a couple segments. Coming up, I want to ask you, Marcus, about how difficult it is to be around football when you are no longer able to play football and uh, you know what you went through as an athlete. Plus, uh, your wife is a sensational influence on your life, as many of our spouses are, but... Uh, I want to talk about the influence that she has had on you as well. Leave it here. More with Marcus Lattimore next. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Former South Carolina running back Marcus Lattimore has been kind enough to stick around. I want to ask you about football. You went back to South Carolina after your NFL career ended. You retired from the NFL. You go back to South Carolina, and you go into this role where you are working in player development. And so you're working with athletes uh, as it pertains to everything but football. 
you found your way back to a team, so to speak. But was it difficult for you, given what you went through with the injuries and football being such an important part of your life, Marcus, that was it difficult for you to be around the football but not be able to participate in the football? You know what I mean? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I was still, during that time in my life, I was still uh, a little bit uh, resentful and envious of those that were my age who were playing in the NFL. Um, so I don't think it was hard for me, but it was hard for me to transition. It took me a few years to get out of that that identity of being a football player. Um, that With that job, which Coach Muschamp gave me an opportunity, and I'm forever grateful to, I learned so much about the ins and outs of college football. Um, it wasn't hard for me, but it, it, it was difficult to – get out of that phase of, of being that football because that's all I that's all I've done my whole life. Yeah. And you know, transitioning into a, a professional teaching life skills and social skills. It, it took me a while to find my legs. Uh but you know, I I, I left and, you know, went to Lewis and Clark and had a great experience there. But I love development, which is why I'm still mentoring. And you know, development I think more than ever is, is needed in this new era of NIL because, I mean, there's, you know, with a lot more money comes a lot more corruption and a lot more egotistical tendencies right to the occasion. That development is needed more than ever uh, during this new wave of college football. You know, you look back at your career and you had several knee injuries. The last one in that Tennessee game was devastating and, you know, I think you I think you dislocated it and you tore every ligament. And, you know, for a kid who had leaned so heavily onto football, I know your faith is important to you as well, but that must have been a really hard time to go, to go through that second injury and, you know, really deal with, okay, uh, this is going to be a big climb to get back on the field and get to the NFL. Well, you just don't think it's going to happen to you. <laughs> you. You know, so when it happens, it's just kind of unbelievable. Uh, it, it's like you're watching yourself. You're watching it happen to someone else, but it's like you're having an out-of-body experience. It, it's, it's just you don't think it's going to happen. You know, not not me, you know. Um, and, you know, that message was, was replaying in my head, why me, why me? And, you know, I look back at that time seven years later, and I'm thankful that it happened, John, in a, in a strange way because, I mean, it, it just – I grew so much as a human being. I grew so much as a person because of because of adversity. It's, it's, you know, it it makes you stronger. It, it, it does. You just don't see it in the moment. Uh, and, you know, did, did, I, did I miss out on a, 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 a potential – uh, lengthy career in the NFL, yes. Did I miss out on millions of dollars? Yes, but I'm wealthy in so many different ways now. I mean, I live in this beautiful state of Oregon where, you know, you can hike, uh, you can get to a hike 30 minutes from the city and you're in the middle of nowhere. Um, I'm riding. Um, I'm, um, it's, been, it's just been really refreshing 
uh, to turn the page from that. But you know, in the in the moment, uh, it was hell. Uh, I, I, I didn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Tell me about the writing. I'm interested in that. What are you doing? Uh, where can can people read what you're writing? What are you doing? www.marcuslattimore.com. I have a blog. Um, I unapologetically share my feelings, uh, my, my experiences, my emotions, uh, how I interpret situations. And it really just comes from, you know, just my, my, my growth as a, as a human being. Um, it, it's, you know, when you go through something like I went through um, and the world sees it, and you, you, you really have to do some soul search or, um, or, or, or you don't. And, you know, you, you sit and you and you wallow in that pity and you wallow in that sorrow, and that I, that's not something that I that I wanted to do. I mean, I, I it, it took me a while to adjust, and I went through a lots of ups and lots of downs, and I had to really look in the mirror and and, and see, okay, like what's next for me? Uh, but because football is over with. And when you're forced to answer that question, it forces you to look at yourself. And uh, that that's what my writing is all about, self-awareness, mindfulness, uh, really, really coming into who you really are. I love that. It's a great message. Uh, Marcus Lattimore, our guest, former South Carolina star running back, uh, played uh, with the 49ers, drafted by the Niners, now doing some important work here in the state of Oregon. Uh, the wellness event it is a wellness camp going on August 27th uh, from 11 to 2 p.m., 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Uh, where can people get more info, Marcus, about the wellness camp? You can go to Multnomah County, um, .com. Uh I will. It will also be on my social media sites, uh, on, on Instagram. It will be on Twitter. Um, and, and there will be flyers all around the city. You know, my, my, my plan next, my plan this week was to put them all over, all over the area of the Cully neighborhood, uh, which, which runs from, uh, 42nd all the way to the, to the airport. And it, you know, specifically, we, we really, uh, are targeting that area, but everybody is welcome. Um, you know, I, I'm putting the flyers all over the place. Um, digitally, but uh, you can go to my site. Also, be on my site, and uh, yeah, we're, we're gonna we're gonna have a good time and, and learning and you know growing as a community, standing together. You had a great tweet yesterday. You you tweeted, "Take care of yourself, but don't live for yourself." What do you mean by that? Mm. We. We have to um, put ourselves first uh, in terms of our health. Uh, we have to do the things necessary uh, so that we feel good. Uh, but at the same time, if we live a self-absorbed life, we'd never really find happiness. Uh, the only way we really find fulfillment and satisfaction is when we give back to others. So that means do all the things that you can. Get sleep, drink water, eat whole foods, 
express your emotions. All of these things that, you know, are, are, are just self, all around self-care. Do those things and put yourself first so that you can feel good to pour into other people. And, and I mean, that's really kind of been a motto for me over the past couple months. Because, uh, I, I, I mean, I know at the end of the day, when I'm happy is when I'm giving back. But I can't give back. I can't pour from an empty cup. So I love that. Your wife, Miranda, is a photographer, phenomenal photographer, and yoga instructor. I hear that peace and calm in Marcus Lattimore. She's been a terrific influence, hasn't she? Oh, my goodness. Oh, man. It, it's... um. It's really been transformational ever since she started her path in yoga. Um, it, it, it's been a philosophy that I lean on, um, not only the practice, physical practice, but, I mean, the, 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 the spiritual practice as well has, has really been, uh, it, it's, it's transformed me, and, and I'm thankful for her. I'm thankful for her walk in it uh, because, man, that, that that influence has been strong, and, um, yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful for her. Marcus Lattimore, you're doing good things, man. I, I really encourage people to get involved with this wellness camp. Check out his writings at MarcusLattimore.com, and we'll, we'd love to have you back on and talk some college football and NFL if you're up for it this season. I'll, I'll drag you onto the show. We can, we can talk about what we're seeing and... I love the insight into Utah going to Gainesville, but, man, you've got so much to offer, and I appreciate that you're out there doing that. I can't wait. I look forward to it, John. You have a great day, Marcus Lattimore. You too. I just love the vibe and the energy of Marcus Lattimore. I love the fact that he is continuing to give back, that he's found some purpose that's greater than himself. Like, you can hear it in – you can hear the peace. Can you not hear the peace in Marcus Lattimore's – uh, voice and, and his message. Uh, that's a guy I, I would love to support, and I will bring him back on during the college football season because I want to talk football with, with Marcus Lattimore as well. I want you to leave it here. You got the bald face truth statewide. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Great interviews on today's show. If you missed the interview with Chase Coda, University of Oregon wide receiver, you can grab it uh, via podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iTunes, wherever you get a podcast, you can get the Bald Face Truth radio show. He was fantastic. And, of course, Marcus Lattimore, the former South Carolina running back, he uh, just joined us uh, a few minutes ago. Uh, if you missed any of that or you heard it and you want to share it with someone, I mean, it, I think it had that kind of value. Uh, you can also grab the podcast. Anna's popped into the studio. Anna, I know you didn't hear the Marcus Lattimore interview because you weren't in the studio, but, man, he has a lot of life perspective to offer. He is somebody who had a devastating knee injury, had his career ended. Um, he has found purpose beyond that. He's living in the state of Oregon, uh, you know, had a blink in the NFL, but he lost out, as he pointed it, on millions of dollars in opportunity. And then Chase Coda, earlier in the show, he gave us his anthem. Do you want to hear Chase Coda's anthem? Yes. Okay, here is here it is. It's not an artist that I even knew existed. It's not a song I'd ever heard. Steve Lacey, Bad Habit. I knew you 
enough to it. Turning it down now. Um, that gets me on the topic. Okay, so first of all, that's a Southern California song. You you went to Pepperdine. Is that the kind of music that would fly at Pepperdine? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of a lot of different kinds of music will fly at Pepperdine, but that would fit. Sure, yeah. All right, brings us to the topic of your anthem. Do you have an anthem yourself? A song that what kept, what popped into your mind when I said, "What's your anthem?" Uh, it's that song by One Republic. It's called I Lived. Mostly, I mean, I like the melody, but mostly I just like the lyrics. What do you like about the song? Because it's it's basically how I try to live my life. Like, the lyrics are about, you know, I did it all. I saw many places. I did a lot. Uh, yeah, I, I broke bones, but I lived, you know? Like, I don't want to be one of those people that just kind of goes day to day and feels like life is stagnant. Like I want life to be full of joy and vibrance and variety. It's really interesting. I think this is an interesting exercise. All right, we have the One Republic song, I Lived. Here's Anna's anthem. Moment comes, you say. I love that. That's good. It's a good exercise in trying to uh, understand who what somebody's about. Like it's it's funny that that's your song. And I wonder for people listening to this, if your spouse or your significant other, if you ask them what their song is. First of all, I wouldn't have known that that was your anthem. Okay. I've only told you. I'm not paying attention. Okay. This is evidence that I'm not paying attention. <laughs> I've only blasted into the car and said, this is my anthem. Well, I uh, I uh, apparently learned that today. So here's here's the exercise I would give you in our couples therapy session today on this radio show. First of all, do you know your spouse's anthem? Ask yourself that. And then, does your spouse know your anthem? And if so, are the anthems at all similar? Meaning, are you in the same genre? Because I think I find it very interesting, Anna, that you mention that particular song. Because my anthem is very similar. It's not the same song, but my anthem is called "The Nights." These are the nights. See? Do you see the similarity? The theme is the same. I do. I do. That's that's interesting. I started laughing when I heard uh, the line that, you know, the life will soon be over since you're so obsessed with your own mortality. I'm not obsessed with my mortality. I am, uh, I've come to grips with the fact that nobody lives forever. And I understand that that's how it works, that nobody lives forever. And so I want to, I'm going to be aware of that. Like, teams know. They go onto the field. What do they know? They know the first quarter is ending at a certain time. They can see the clock. They know when the quarter ends. There's going to be a second quarter, a third quarter, fourth quarter, maybe an overtime. 
but they generally know this is how much time you have. We don't have that luxury in life. We don't have like a expiration date on us, but we all know nobody lives forever. And so I think in the end, it's important to be aware of that. Now, I'm just, I remind myself on a daily basis because you know why? I am the worst. I get caught up in the stupid minutiae of day-to-day life and not really recognizing or owning and knowing that, um, you know, maybe some of the things I do in the course of my day aren't congruent with somebody who knows, hey, soak it up. These are the nights, you know, you're not going to live forever. So I say it out loud. I verbalize it to myself. I like that. I like that. I'm probably a little different in that I'm more in the moment. So like I just, just today, I was looking at the artwork that we have displayed in our house, which is primarily created by our kids. And I took a picture of it because I was like, oh, man, you know, I know that there's going to be a day when they're not creating these kind of drawings, these elementary school type drawings and paintings. And I know that in part because we have a 19 year old and I've you know been in her life since she was little and and so i know like how fast that goes you know i've gotten to be her stepmom but in the process i've appreciated like just man once the kid gets to high school the years absolutely fly by and so like i i I take those moments i think almost daily i try to to think to myself wow it really does go by fast and and cherish those moments I'm reminded as we had this conversation that we were talking the other day on the show about one of the peeves that we have with soccer as a sport. And for me, one of the peeves there is the fact that that the stoppage time, none of us knows except for the referee how much stoppage time is left. The referee is kind of like God out there in the soccer pitch. The The referee decides when this game is over, blows the whistle, and everybody goes, oh, that was it? You know, and it's kind of what happens in life. Like, you know, you're walking along, heart attack, hit, hit by a bus, you know, die of die in your sleep, whatever that thing is, that's your stoppage time. And the fact is, we all need to remember that we are collectively in stoppage time. And we don't know. Like, you don't know how much time is on the referee's watch when you're watching these games. So, it's a good reminder. I think it's interesting that our songs have that kind of synergy. And it kind of makes me feel like, oh, maybe that's why this works. So, for those listening, ask your significant other, what's your anthem? And then play it and listen to the lyrics, listen to the words, and then play your anthem for your significant other. And you tell me, like, is one of you playing like Eye of the Tiger and the other one's got like the symphony? Like it or are you in the same genre? You know, and I and I was trying to think about what my anthem was during the commercial break, and I was cycling through all these songs that like are more acoustic or whatever that I really like. Uh, and I realized, like, that can't be your anthem because your anthem's got to be upbeat. It's got to be, you know, it has to have a lesson and a message. I don't know. What I think it would be funny if, if, you know, two people who are together have vastly different anthems. Like, one of them is all joyful and melodic and upbeat, and the other one's just, just really dark, dark and twisty. You know? Speaking of dark and twisty, we've been watching that Woodstock 99 documentary. We finished it last night. I highly recommend it. If you're into music, if you're into event planning, if you're just into people watching, it is a sociological experiment. And I don't think there will be a follow-up Woodstock event based upon the the uh, massive mess that Woodstock 99 turned into. People remember Woodstock 1969. It was peace, love, dope, whatever. 
And it Woodstock 99 was about rage and destruction. What do you think happened to our society in those 30 years? And can we hold that event up as evidence of the deterioration of society? Or was it just a poorly planned event? Uh, I think the latter. I think it was a poorly planned event. And by the time day three rolled around, people were exhausted, hungover, and dehydrated and filthy. And um, I have a feeling when I'm watching it, it's it's really a phenomenal documentary. It's called Trainwreck, and it's very aptly titled. And I, I have this feeling as I'm watching it, for anybody that saw the documentary on fire, the fire festival, and what a disaster that was, it makes me want to go look up this one on Woodstock to see when they started working on it. Because I feel like the producers saw the fire festival documentary and how much people enjoyed that debacle and uh went oh remember woodstock 99 and what an absolute mess that was let's go find the footage and the beauty of it is that in 99 there were just enough camcorders like there were just enough people capturing footage you know for themselves that there's like ample video to show just the destruction and the chaos that happened at at Woodstock 99. I'm interested in kind of the sociological side of sports and life. And it was pointed out in the documentary that the kids that are the kids, the people who were at this Woodstock 99 thing, they there was very little security. There was 250,000 people. There were bands like Corn and Limp Biscuit who were playing and kind of ramping up the energy. They, the, the people who were there at the concert, uh, there was no shade. They were getting gouged for water. They were getting gouged on food. Um, it was unsanitary. They just kind of lost control. But one of the people in there sort of suggested that there was no TikTok. There was no Instagram. There was no Twitter. There was no way for people to vent. And therefore, they started tearing things down and rioting. And they turned into anarchists. But we have some of that stuff now. So I don't totally buy the idea that it was just about, hey, these people had nowhere to vent, and so therefore they tore the event up. I think it was just more about a lack of security, poor planning. Maybe somebody should have thought about the lineup of the bands and worked you know, Cheryl Crow and Jewel in earlier in the set. But um, it's kind of sad to me that you know the spirit of that Woodstock, very inclusive, you know, mellow, you know, all the hippies in 1969, was not at all present in 1999. Well, and what's interesting to me, too, is just the idea. I had no idea. I don't know what I was doing in 99, but it wasn't on my radar. The idea that 250,000 young people gathered at a location in New York to listen to music for three or four days. Like, I, I, I know that you mentioned while we were watching, I was like a quarter of a million people. Like, I... I, I don't know that I've ever been in the presence of that many people. And it's, you know, like I think about it from a performer standpoint, being on a stage and feeling the electricity of 250,000 people would be so surreal. Yeah, the artists talk about that. It's well worth your time. Check it out. Coming up, we're going to pivot back to sports. I promise.
There's obviously been a shift in mentality when it comes to gambling and sports that's happened over the years. It wasn't that long ago that players in uh, Major League Baseball and the NFL were forbid from having any kind of relationship with a gambling entity, a casino, uh, or whatnot. Major League Baseball today announced its support of an initiative that would authorize online sports betting in California. They become the first major sports league to take a side in the high-stakes battle between bookmaking and gaming operators that are tribal gaming operators. This is going to hit the state of Oregon. You better be sure of it. Uh, there are two initiatives on the November ballot. Proposition 26 would restrict betting to in-person only at tribal casinos or horse racing tracks. Proposition 27 would allow online sports betting. Major League Baseball is supporting Proposition 27. Uh, it's backed by a coalition of sportsbooks operators, including DraftKings and FanDuel. A percentage of the revenue from Proposition 27 would be dedicated to fighting homelessness. I think this is an interesting angle by the gambling entities to make it about homelessness. And I'm all about this in the state of Oregon. We have online wagering, but we don't have the ability to wager on college sporting events in this state. So you're uh, precluded from doing that in the state of Oregon, prohibited from doing that. I wonder if they made it about homelessness and uh, may, you know, dedicated a portion of the proceeds from gambling on in-state sporting events to helping the problem with homelessness in our state. Anna, let's kick it around. First of all, genius by DraftKings, FanDuel, and the legislators and lobbyists who want this done to uh, include homelessness in California as part of the beneficiary to gambling. Yeah, I mean, I think they're taking on a social issue that has a lot of relevance right now. It's timely um, and obviously is underfunded and needs more resources. So that's going to be appealing to a lot of people. Um, it, you know, how, like part of me has a hard time understanding because I'm not a big sports gambling person. But I know that a lot of people who are like they're really into it. And I think you and I have talked about like how betting on games at different levels or the either collegiate or professional changes the way that you watch the game. So maybe, you know, can you give me a little bit of insight into that whole psychology? What is the allure and does it make game watching more fun? I think it definitely adds interest, and I think you definitely see with fantasy sports sort of the introduction of the red zone programming on on DirecTV and, uh, you know, people being more willing to watch the Cleveland Browns play the Cincinnati Bengals on a Sunday because, hey, I've got a wide receiver in this game and or a quarterback in this game or the kicker or the defense in this game. So I think fantasy sports is added to that. I think people have figured out that, you know, your cell phone, your laptop, your gaming console, your tablet can be a gambling device. And, you know, you, you have people that play a variety of different gambling uh, entities when they go to a casino, whether it be a tribal casino or a Vegas casino. But I, I think what lawmakers are doing and legislators are, are doing these days is they're going, hey, we need funding. We need to find new revenue streams. And, and you know, they've taxed gasoline. They've taxed tobacco. They've basically, you know, they, they've raised property taxes or sales taxes to create funding but i think they think you know sometimes the vices are an easy way to revenue and gambling becomes that now the tribal casino lobbyists are against proposition 27 in california they say there's no way to ensure that kids won't be gambling 
which I think is kind of silly because I do think there's a way to ensure that kids can't gamble, uh, you know, by virtue of how you sign up for an account and protecting your password, et cetera. But um, uh, they also claim that it will take the profits out of state and away from the tribal casinos. Um, I think that's a concern. But if DraftKings and other entities, FanDuel, are the beneficiaries primarily, um, then, you know, and they're located, they're headquartered out of state, you're going to see money get out of state. I feel for the tribal casinos that want to have destination sports books. But I also think there's a number of people who are wagering already illegally using offshore apps and websites, and this is a way to regulate it, and it's also a way to solve some of our problems uh, with homelessness and, and whatnot. It feels like, you know, with technology, it's one of those things where I'm surprised that it's not already in place because to me... It almost feels like the idea of having to like physically go somewhere to place a wager is going to be something that will go by the wayside in the next five to ten years completely. Just because everything is so available now, like you said, on mobile devices, that that's just kind of not how the world is set up anymore. I think the state of Oregon has got to get with it when it comes to legislators in the state. Uh, allowing wagering on college sporting events that are held in this state. I think it's just silly that you can bet on dog racing, darts, go-kart racing, uh, international basketball, but you can't bet on a sporting college sporting event in this state. Uh, it just kind of feels silly and archaic to me. Coming up, the five at five. And oh, by the way, you got, you're, you're fighting with one arm tied behind your back. You're not fully embracing the revenue that could come in and help solve some issues in our state. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. So, past that already. I know they punted it to the next legislative session in Oregon. A lot of people frustrated by that. And I and I know longtime lawmaker Peter Courtney came on this show prior to the last legislative session, and, you know, he made it one of his missions to try to get that legislation passed. It it's It's dumb that wage people who are in the sports into sports wagering in the state don't have an opportunity or the means by which to uh, go out and wager on a college sporting event and it's just ridiculous that you can do it in other states you can do it at some of the tribal casinos that offer sports wagering in our state but uh, you know what happened is the lobbyists for the tribal casinos got in the way here and they said well we need to do a study which is code for hey let's just stall for a while and punt this down the road so that we can continue to have the monopoly on sports wagering in the state. It's, uh, you know, it's not right. It it doesn't help the operation because, you know, again, uh, what's going to happen in the end is there are going to be some people who want to roll back the idea that you can even wager on sports events in the state of Oregon, that you can use DraftKings and an app to go do that. Then they're going to say, well, look, it isn't all that profitable. Here's the money that it's bringing in. And it's been wildly successful. It's making money, and it's generating uh, the revenue that it's supposed to generate for the state. But it's not allowing the entity to fully operate. It's got one arm behind its back, as I mentioned, because if you don't have the ability to wager on college sporting events, but you can wager on darts and go-kart racing and the NBA and Major League Baseball and the NFL and whatnot and – it, you're not fully maximizing what the operation can be and the amount of money that it could generate. And, you know, I'm not a uh, economic genius here, but if I were the state of Oregon, I would want the commitment that I have made to wagering to include every possible uh, thing that it could that it could include. Like you go into a Nevada casino, you can wager on a college 
football game. You should be able to do that in the state of Oregon when it comes to your DraftKings app or your Oregon Lottery scoreboard app or whatever, you know, ends up being the thing. All right, I want you to leave it here. The 5 at 5 is coming up. It's the five biggest stories in sports. I'll cover it all. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Radio show is sailing along. Great hour number one, Chase Coda, University of Oregon wide receiver. Continuing a family tradition, he joined us on the show. Marcus Lattimore lit it up in hour number two. He was great, former South Carolina running back. Guy that went to the NFL, 49ers picked him, but could not overcome the knee injuries and the surgeries that he had. Ultimately, still, Marcus Lattimore's got a lot to offer you. If you missed those interviews, grab the podcast, but we're going to kick off the happy hour with the 555. Five, five, the 5 at 5. Well, we got to start with Fernando Tatis Jr. So disappointed. Maybe he was just trying to come back from an injury and needed a little boost. Maybe Fernando Tatis Jr. lost his way. But San Diego Padres shortstop has been suspended for 80 games after testing positive for cholesterol is a performance-enhancing substance that violates MLB's Joint Drug Prevention and Treatment Program. Suspension was announced today. It's effective immediately. It means that he cannot play in the majors again this year. In a statement, he said he's not going to appeal the ban. He said it was his mistake that led to the positive test. Claims that he inadvertently took a medication to treat ringworm. I guess. Fernando Tatis Jr., this is what he sounded like when he was on the field. He's a fantastic uh, player, obviously, but... Fly ball, deep left field, crushed. Fernando Tatis Jr. connects on a 21st home run of the year. 477, tail of the tape. Hitting bombs, fielding ground balls. Fernando Tatis Jr. done for the year. Padres have to be disappointed. They made some moves. He is their biggest star. And at age 23, one of the biggest young stars in baseball. He's in the second season of a $340 million contract. But uh, Tatis will be shelved now as part of the PED trend that happens in baseball. Second thing in our 5 at 5, let's talk about Deshaun Watson. He finally said what he needed to say all along. He apologized. He said he regretted impacting the lives of the women that he affected. Where was this from Deshaun Watson? all these weeks and months ago look i want to say that i'm truly sorry to all the women that i've impacted in this situation um, my des- decisions that i made in my life that put me in this position um you know I, w- I would definitely like to have back this is his third interview since joining the browns in the other two interviews he said he had quote no regrets end quote regarding any of his actions i'm thinking that the nfl got to deshaun watson and said look Part of the problem here is you haven't been remorseful. You haven't owned it. You haven't apologized. It was a different story today. He said the decisions from his life that put him in his position, he'd love to have them back. He also apologized. Watson and the Browns are still waiting to hear whether he will be suspended longer than six games, the six games he was already given. 
the NFL has been seeking a tougher punishment. Number three in our five at five, can the kids from the state of Oregon, the little leaguers in Oregon, can they get their money back? Little League Baseball officials ripped them off yesterday. Bottom of the seventh inning, Washington, Oregon playing for a game that was the gateway to Williamsport. Ground ball hit down the third baseline. Third base umpire says foul ball. Runner on first, keeps running. Home plate umpire says fair ball. The Oregon players stopped playing because the third base umpire threw his hands in the air, said foul, but the home plate umpire ruled it fair. Later upon review, the ball was ruled fair. The runner from first base scored. The Oregon kids, I wish they would have played the whistle or beyond the whistle. The Washington kids did. Liner down the third baseline, landed foul, went over the bag. The umpire at home plates got the call. The third base umpire, I think, blew it. Threw his hands in the air as he was moving into foul territory. If you don't see it, you call it fair and you let the umpire behind the home plate overrule you. It's really interesting. You know, maybe you little league, uh, maybe you umpired a little league game. I have in my day, but apparently the umpires in this Little League World Series event are not compensated. They're not paid. Little League Baseball has a $60 million TV deal. The CEO of Little League, Steve Keener, is making $430,000 a year. I'm a little bit disappointed that you don't throw a bone to the umpires. Let's get better umpires out there. Let's get real umpires out there with a, trips to, a trip to Williamsport uh, at stake. It's a lesson learned for the Oregon kids. It's a tough one, though. Umpire at third base calls it foul. I guess you got to keep playing like the Washington kids did. I think it's great that these umpires were volunteering. I don't want to bag on them too much. But damn, would you want to have somebody volunteering with this kind of stakes? Let's get a real umpire. Let's get a high school umpire. Let's get a college umpire. When it gets down to the, hey, there's a trip to Williamsport at stake, you want to send the best of the best there. They didn't get the best of the best. Little League Baseball. This was a foul that I'm calling on you. Fourth thing in our five at five. I'm going to come back to this Major League Baseball debut by Winton Bernard. Have you heard of Winton Bernard? Ten seasons in the minor leagues. He's, a, he's, he's the equivalent of Crash Davis. He was in AAA Albuquerque today, and the Rockies brought him up. Penciled in to bat seventh and play center field against the Diamondbacks in the opener of a three-game series. 31-year-old Winton Bernard, taken in the 35th round of the 2012 draft, spent three seasons with the Padres, also played in the minor league system of the Tigers, the Giants, and the Cubs. He, meant, he went to the Mexican Winter League, the Venezuelan Winter League, independent ball. He even played in the Australian Baseball League. This is great. This is a great story. And, you know, I'm hoping he sticks, but I'm hoping he just gets comfortable in the big leagues. Like Crash Davis once said, you know, the baseballs are white. The balls are perfect. The infield's perfect. There's no bad hops once you get to the big leagues. Congratulations to Winton Bernard. Well done. 
finally, our fifth thing in the five at five. Let's talk a little college football. Mario Cristobal. He's got some big expectations. They talked about it uh, today on ESPN's College Football Live. What are the expectations for Mario Cristobal? Well, Vegas says that the over-under win total for the Miami Hurricanes is eight and a half wins. But here's what they said on ESPN College Football Live. I agree with it all, and I really, really like what Mario has done as far as assembling a staff, Roman. I, I think it's mm-hmm. tremendous the guys that he brought in. You talk about Josh Gaddis. You talk about Kevin Steele. Uh, you talk about Alex Maribel, who's got great offensive line uh, teaching skills. Charlie Strong's former head coach. Ed Reed, the man, is the chief of staff. I love that title for him. Uh, but but why I like this and, and what he's assembled is because this is the problem. You know, you have to manage these expectations. And when you beat Pitt and NC State last year, everybody thinks they're just as good as anybody in the conference. Well, now you're going to find out a lot about yourself when you go to College Station. And then you obviously have that road game at Clemson later in the year. So I think the staff he assembled is absolutely huge for the for the trajectory that this program wants to go in. So I, I, I'd be fired up, Christine. Get all your gear out. Get all your we gear do this out every season. and get ready to roll. This is going to be a good year. Miami returned 79% of its offensive players from last year. 79%. Everybody is looking at him thinking they can win about nine games. Eight to nine, eight and a half. The line feels right. But can they go nine and three? Can they get to the over? Miami starts with two non-conference opponents that are cupcakes. Bethune-Cookman in the opener, Southern Miss in Week 2. They should be 2-0 and when Miami goes in Week 3 to play Texas A&M. Now, Texas A&M could be in a sleepy spot with a new quarterback. There's Arkansas in Week 4. And then when you look down their schedule, you know, it's, it's only Clemson that really scares you if you're a Miami fan. I like I like Miami to get to nine wins. I also think we've seen enough of Mario Cristobal to know that he's probably going to lose a game or two that he shouldn't lose. See Stanford last year, Stanford three years ago, the Utah games. Miami in the midst of a revival, but the over-under eight-and-a-half win total. That's your five at five, the five biggest things going on. Sean, I want to pepper you with the five at five. Let's start with Fernando Tatis Jr. Really disappointed to see such a good young player wrapped up in a PED scandal. He's trying to say it was a ringworm medication. Are you buying it? Uh, I appreciate the fact that he came out and said, you know, this was my fault. And he wasn't just like, oh, I didn't do this. Like, I'm going like a lot of people do that when they get caught. Um, yeah, I, I think I'd buy it. It's just like, what a roller coaster of emotions for the uh, San Diego Padres. They landed Juan Soto last week, and everyone thought they were going to be uh, contenders for the World Series, and now they lose Fernando Tatis, who's really the backbone. He's kind of their original star. So uh, I don't think, I mean, what do you think? Do you think the Padres are still, uh, are they still contenders, and do you buy it? I, I don't buy it. I think he probably was rehabbing and wanted to get back sooner, and he took a shortcut. So I'm having a little bit of an issue there. But um, I just don't buy the ringworm thing. Like, you know, literally these are athletes that train, have personal trainers, have nutritionists. They're very careful about what they put into their body. If you're a Major League Baseball player or an Olympic runner or a cyclist, you, you damn well know what you're putting into your body, especially if it's a medication you're checking that with other people going, hey, is this okay for me to take? I, 
I think he was probably rehabbing. He probably took something he shouldn't have taken to shortcut it and got caught. Uh, I like that he owned it, but he only owned it to a certain extent. I, I loved what the Padres were doing. They were going all in trying to win it. But I, I have to wonder, you know, what's this, what this will do to their odds. They were like 14 to 1 to win the World Series at one point, and I'm, I'm trying to get an update on where they are now. They moved all the way up to 10 to 1 after the Soto trade. I got to think that they're going to drop back to 14, 15 to, you know, to 1 after this move because I just don't think that you can take their arguably their best player and a guy that has been very consistent for them out of the lineup and have them produce at a high level. Uh, second item, uh, let's talk to Sean Watson. What took him so long? Why do you think he's coming out now to finally apologize? Yeah, I think you mentioned it. It's the NFL stuff, you know? Like, the NFL's been kind of grilling him a little bit, and it sounds like Roger Goodell is uh, is kind of threatening a full full year suspension. Maybe he's just kind of tired of the, the kind of ongoing thing. He wants to admit it. And it, I think it definitely makes sense that he is doing this interview kind of curated by the Browns uh, yeah. pregame show, right? Like, he hasn't admitted any guilt. Um, during like you know with media members that are aren't associated with the Browns, but he kind of did. It makes total sense that it's it's under the Browns' wing. But man, I don't, I don't really know uh, what exactly why now you know right before the season. But I it, it, like if he didn't if he didn't do this to me, this was kind of like him admitting it, and this just would have been going on forever. And now there can be like a pure punishment for it, and we can move on. I just wish he would have said not said in the two prior interviews that he had no regrets. Because saying you have regrets isn't an admission of guilt, you know, and I, I feel like he should have, you know, and I'm sure they're back channeling this with the NFL right now is his his attorneys are probably talking to the NFL attorneys and they're saying, hey, what do you what do you need to hear from him in order to, uh, you know, back down on this, you know, anything greater than a six game suspension? And they probably said, first and foremost, we, we need him to apologize. We need him to own this. We need him to, to be accountable, like before we can go any further. And you heard Roger Goodell earlier in the week. He said, literally, Deshaun Watson showed predatory behavior. He was acting in a predatory way. And so I think Deshaun Watson's camp is finally getting the message that the NFL is going to come down harder on him. Uh, another of our 5 at 5 topics, the Little Leaguers. Man, this bothered me. Uh, look, and, and look, it's Little League. I think, you know, too much is put into who wins and who goes to Williamsport. But I hate to see a 2-2 game in the seventh inning with one out, a runner on first base, a batter at the plate, and you see a ball hit down the third base line, and the third base umpire clearly yells foul, puts his hands in the air. You can see the Oregon players sort of stop playing, realizing it's a foul ball. Everybody on the field stops except the runner on first as the third base coach is waving him around. Third base coach was very astute and noticed that the home plate umpire had called it fair while the third base umpire called it foul. And, oh, by the way, that is the home plate umpire's call. So I do think the umpire at third base, who was a volunteer, made a bad call. But why are we having volunteers out on the base paths for these kinds of games? Yeah, no. Yeah, the little league's got to put their money where their mouth is. Like, if they're gonna if they're gonna put this thing on ESPN at a beautiful stadium in Pennsylvania, like they make this a dream for the twelve, thirteen year olds, and then they they don't match it with the uh, the the wages that they pay the umpires. You know, they have volunteers out there, and they're just kind of setting themselves up to break these kids' hearts. Like, my heart goes out to the kids from I think it was Bend, yeah. right? Uh, you know, it's just awful. Like, it, again, like you can't you can't set up this dream for the kids. 
kids. And then the umpires really, they can dictate these games when it's a 2-2 game in the the last inning. And, uh, man, I just uh, think this one's going to sting for the kids from Oregon. Hopefully uh, it'll be a, a good memory in the long term, though. I mean, I'm still bitter about a, you know, a random bad call in Dayton 35 years ago. Imagine if that happened to you in the Little League World Series. Yeah. Yeah, it was bad, and this is the regional championship, so this is the gateway to Williamsport, this game that the winner gets to go to it. But Little League Baseball's TV contract is worth $7.5 million a year, so it's an eight-year deal worth $60 million. The CEO of Little League makes $430,000 a year. That's ridiculous. But I remember, like, you know, look, granted, this was like 35, 40 years ago. I was making five bucks a game to umpire. Why are these guys not getting anything to umpire? So I think if you pay these umpires, maybe you get a third-base umpire who is a little more refined. I guess I can't blame the guy that was out there trying to make the call, but, man, it's really just a, it's a sucky way to lose a game. All right, we're going to talk about Peter Sampson's song. Uh, we, we talked about Anna's anthem, my anthem. Uh, Chase Coda got to play his anthem. Uh, Peter Sampson, you have an anthem? Sean, do you have an anthem? If so, I'm going to find out what those are in the next segment. Plus, uh, we'll go deeper on the college football season. Oregon and Oregon State, uh, what is ahead for them in the early part of the season? What are the questions for the Ducks and the Beavers? Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. In hour number one, Chase Cota, former... UCLA wide receiver now with the Oregon Ducks told us that uh, he had an anthem. He picked kind of a groovy song uh, that uh, get, really makes you think about Southern California. Really groovy, kind of has a real Southern California vibe to it. That's Chase Coda's anthem. He says it's a song that makes him smile. Then Anna came on the show, and uh, Anna talked about the song that uh, she likes, and she considers her anthem. You say. And then, interesting, it was interesting to me to hear her say that that's her anthem because I thought, gosh, my, an- my the song I would pick as an anthem is very similar to that. It kind of has that, you know, live for the now, live in the moment, seize the day uh, kind of vibe to it. Here's, here's the song I picked. The nights, you know, and so there's a kind of a live in the moment, seize the day vibe to that. And so, Sean and Peter, I, I feel it's only fair that we ask you what your anthems are. Who wants to go first? I'll go first. Okay, Sean, let it rip. What, now, give us an idea. Preface this by telling us kind of where your head went when I said anthem song. Yeah, my head said, do not play a hardcore hip-hop song. That doesn't belong on the radio. So you like other music, too, besides hip-hop. So play something that's more uh, appropriate for the radio, even if I got the clean version. So okay. uh, big fan of The weekend. Tell me this song doesn't put a smile on your face. 
me what you really like Baby, I can take my time We don't ever have to fight Just take it step by step I can see it in your eyes Cause they never tell me lies I can feel that body shake And the heat between your legs that's I feel it coming by that. the weekend. You like yes, that? Yes, I do. Uh, you know what? I uh, whenever I hear the weekend, do we call him the weekend or is he is he weekend? Uh, the weekend or He's Abel? The weekend. His real name's Abel. All right, I like calling him the weekend. But uh, every time I hear one of his songs, I think that he's like Bruno Mars and Michael Jackson's neighbor. Because that's kind of the vibe of his song. He's got a little bit of that poppy. He can sing a little. But everything's very upbeat. And I can't help when you play that song but move around. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's kind of a happy feeling. And like Anna was talking about how the lyrics of her song uh, really meant a lot to her. For me, it's more like that just, song just has an energy to it. I don't really relate to the lyrics as much. I guess like him saying I feel it coming is like, you know, kind of like a positive thing happening in the future. But to me, it's more of just like that is just such a happy song. I didn't even play the chorus. I, if yeah. I would have done this better, I would have played the chorus. But uh, yeah, do play the chorus. I want to hear the chorus. Oh let, man, let give me. Let, I'll jump to that after Peter yeah. goes. How about yeah. that? Okay, yeah. Peter. Peter's gonna go next. Peter, when when I said Peter Sampson, you're gonna play your your anthem. Where did your mind go? Man, it went straight to. Uh, I guess it's dad rock now. I'll even start playing while I talk over it because it takes a minute to get to the good part. But it's not about. Uh, lyrics for me, I know it was interesting that you and Anna kind of had a similar message. Yeah. It was uplifting and positive. To me, it's not about the vocals or the words at all. It's about the riff. It's about the music. Not my favorite band, but it's uh, probably the best guitar album ever. This is the Smashing Pumpkins, 1993. The song is Cherub Rock. Give me 15 seconds to get to that riff, John. If God played in a rock band, those guitars would sound like that. <laughs> Always gets me fired up. Yeah, You know what I think about when I hear that song is I, I see you driving, you got the windows down, there's a little little air blowing through the car you're yeah. on a country road you're driving somewhere maybe it's about four o'clock in the afternoon get your elbow hanging out the door you know what i mean absolutely it's a little uh it's a little cool but not too cool for school you know what i mean it's perfect love that i think of the pulse peter's got that you got that as one of the bumps <laughs> on the pole. you know it baby yeah sean do you have the chorus now it. what's the it. okay the song is uh, it's called I, I feel it coming yeah okay when you're alone with me, I feel it coming. I feel it coming, babe. I feel it coming. I feel it coming, babe. I feel it coming. So repetitive. Nah, it's all right. Though. Remind he's, he's, you of the uh, 2020 Super Bowl halftime he, show? Yeah, he's pounding his message home. But hey, you know what? I just looked it up. It says that in that song, he's singing about a girl who's been in a bad relationship and okay. he's assuring her that he can be trusted and feel comfortable with him. Interesting. 
I'm hoping. It's well produced. <laughs> it just sounds good. You yeah. know what? I, like even outside yeah. of the music, it just sounds. It's pleasing. got that Michael Jackson feel. No one's Michael Jackson, but uh, I think you know. Yeah. You, you mentioned Bruno Mars the weekend. I think Anderson Pat. Like there's some guys out there that are really, really talented that kind of resemble him. I, I I actually think it's kind of a blend. Like Bruno Mars lives in the house on one side of of the weekend, and Michael Jackson lived on the house on the other side, and he heard both influences and created this song. It it, it and here's the other thing with this guy. Um, the beginning of the song, it starts, it's not in stereo, is it? Like the first kind of few bars of the song, when they come on, I always, uh, you know, the very first time I heard the song, I was like, is there something wrong with my stereo? And then all of a sudden I realized it's, it's like, it's just mixed that way. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I play play th- it again. Peter, you, do you recognize that? Yeah, the chorus, it kind of explodes. Like, I don't think it's guitars. It's keyboard pads, but they fill that guitar roll, and they pop left and right. It's almost like it, yes. it's exploding into color when it hits the chorus. Yeah, and I have, because I'm wearing headphones when I listen mm-hmm. to it, I can only hear it in one ear at a time. And so I realize when I'm in the car, I, I'm like, hey, like right there, listen to it. And right here, it'll it'll pop up here in a little bit. There. Tell me what you really like. I think that's. I mean, obviously, it's intentional, but it's almost like, uh, you know, are you ready to rumble? Music style. <laughs> Getting us there. I love that. I love your anthems. Coming up, we'll take some phone calls. I want to know, uh, you know, what you're thinking about on this Friday as it pertains to the sports world. If you want to share something that uh, is on your mind that's been bothering you all week, we can do that as well. Uh, you got the bald face truth. The phone number is 503-417-7575. I want to hear from you. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Every Friday on the show, we play a benchmark called What's Your Pee? Josh in Vancouver's holding. Adrian in Springfield is holding. I've got a peeve. Sean's got a peeve. Peter's got a peeve. Uh, let's play it. What's your peeve? Oh, that pisses me off. That pisses me right off. Call 503-417-7575 and tell Kinzano what's your peeve on the BFT. Brought to you by Revolution Dental Implant Center. A smile revolution, one day solution. All right, let's play. What's your peeve? Line up now. I got two lines open. We're going to let Josh in Vancouver start. Adrian in Springfield to go second. Grab a line at 503-417-7575. Josh, what's on your mind, man? Josh is gone. I waited for Josh. That's my peeve. Callers who hold and then hang up right before I put them on. Adrian's in Springfield. Adrian, go ahead. <laughs> hey, John. How you doing? Uh, so, yeah, I'm a long-life uh, Raiders fan. And, um, you know, Antonio Brown coming to uh, the Raiders and just a debacle of a signing there. You know, I was super excited about him. But, anyways, my peeve today is him comparing himself to Jesus. Are you kidding me? I mean, yeah, he's a great receiver, but you don't go that far. I mean, he's he's not God's gift to the earth when it comes to football, man, and that just totally threw me off my groove. 
Um, yeah, so that, that was definitely my piece today. And as far as anthems goes, I just want to let you guys know, anything by Imagine Dragons these days, that's pretty awesome for an anthem. Thank you for taking my yeah. call, John. I appreciate that. Now, Antonio Brown uh, retweeted that quote, but it's unclear. Did he... Was it a spoof, guys? Did that, you know, it was a spoof quote, wasn't it? It wasn't no, a real that quote. that was him. That no. was him. Yes, Antonio Brown is, he's like football Kanye West. He, uh, he's, he's off his rocker. Uh, that was him. That was his real Twitter account. Man. It was really funny, actually. He compared him, he compared him playing football to, uh, uh, Jesus performing at Red Seeing Rocks. The Beatles. The Beatles. <laughs> That's really funny. That's so offensive. Are we sure that that wasn't a spoof quote? Like, there's no way. That he's... was his real, go to his real Twitter account. Right, Peter? That was real. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. He, my biggest regret in my career doesn't involve calling my GM a cracker or showing up to Raiders camp late in a hot air balloon with frozen feet or throwing rocks at that UPS driver. And it definitely does it. This can't be. This can't be right. This has to be right. Antonio Brown retweeting a fake quote. No, this that's my like peeve. Press release Here's my peeve. Out. Here's my peeve for the week. My peeve is I can't tell. What's real Antonio Brown and what is a spoof Antonio Brown quote? How about how about that as my <laughs> peeve? Uh, Josh is in Vancouver. He is called back. He wants to talk about the Little League situation. Go ahead, Josh. Hey, John. So first let me start off by saying my peeve is is that when you go to me on the phone and I start talking to you, yeah. you can't hear me, and then you put me on blast. Like, <laughs> I'm on you, my man. Like, I would never do that. I would never wait that long and then get there. And I know. Say, ah, I'm going to hang up now. Cold feet. So, anyways, John, I just was calling because I actually wanted to share something funny with you. So, usually I feel like you would be the guy that would be saying this, but um, I wanted to talk about the kids from Oregon in the Little League situation. I feel bad for them, like really bad for them. I agree with you that uh, they got robbed. I agree with you that uh, Little League baseball has got to do more um, for the people that they're putting front and center to, like, represent their sport. But the one area in it I disagree with you is I felt like you were kind of presenting it like it's because these guys are volunteers that we don't know that they're qualified. And I, I don't know personally. I don't know if you know personally, but I don't know what those guys' qualifications are. Those guys could have been longtime referees or umpires in the game of baseball that just thought it would be exciting to volunteer to do this event, and they just made a mistake. So I just called to say I don't necessarily know if it's fair to tie them being volunteers to the fact that that mistake was made because I think that mistake could have been made even by guys who were high school umpires or college umpires, maybe not pro umpires, but – Anyways, so that's yeah. my deal. That was my beef after getting put on blast by yeah. you. And, John, I'll talk to you next week. Have a great weekend. Appreciate the call. Appreciate that you followed through this time, Josh in Vancouver. So here's the thing uh, with these umpires that, that umpire these events that are on TV. And, you know, obviously this is an important game in the Little League world, which just means it's an it's a important Little League game. But – Everybody knows, anybody who's played any amount of baseball knows that the home plate umpire has that call up and down the third baseline. It's a tough call for the umpire who's standing on behind third base as he is trying to move to get out of the way of the ball to judge whether the ball goes over the bag, whether it stays fair, whether it stays foul. Home plate umpire has a great view of it. And home plate umpire actually got the call right. So 
what happens though sometimes when you get championships, you know, games in baseball and in softball, it, it, even in the major leagues and in the World Series and the All Star Game, you get umpires who haven't worked together suddenly on the same field. And there's a lot of familiarity that happens, a lot of trust that happens between the home plate umpire, the first base umpire, the third base umpire, and in some cases with Major League Baseball, when they get into the World Series, they got guys down the lines, into the, into, into the outfield and whatnot. So it's really, I think, over-umpired at that point. But there's a lot of communication that happens. The, the, the umpire who is standing behind third base never should have made a call. That is the home plate umpire's call all the way. He is there to help. But he can't make that call, and he obviously screwed it up because he was, if you see the video of it, he's moving into foul territory by trying to, you know, the, you know, judge whether the ball goes over the bag or not. And the umpire at home plate had an outstanding view, and according to the replay, he got it right. But I just I feel really bad. And, and, and here's the other thing. Like, if the umpires are qualified, pay them. If they're not qualified, get umpires who are qualified out onto the field for this level of game. It's just really unfortunate. And I'm not calling the guy's name out because he essentially is a volunteer. And so I feel really bad about that. All right, I want you to uh, call in if you've got a peeve on your mind. 503-417-7575. We'll continue this in the next segment. I'll share my real peeve. Peter has a peeve. Sean has a peeve. I want to hear yours at 503-417-7575. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I've been looking into this Antonio Brown thing. It's a magnet for controversy. Fox reporting uh, that it was uh, a meme that he retweeted, but um, uh, also USA Today says it's a fake quote, but two other entities said... Antonio Brown posts bizarre quote, and another says Antonio Brown compares himself to Beatles and Jesus. Uh, I, I think that's my peeve, that anything Antonio Brown puts out there seems like it's, it's so absurd it's, it seems fake to me, and I don't care if it is or isn't. It's a never-ending journey with this guy. What's your peeve, Sean? Oh, man, uh, hear me out here. It's, a, uh, it's one towards myself, actually. I am... I am- Really afraid of animals for whatever reason. I love animals, but like wait, when wait. I see them, what? Wait, what do you mean? You're yeah. Okay. So let me tell a little story here. Um, I just every time I'm out, you know, even a squirrel will make me flinch. Um, just because I, I'm just like they scare me. And so, anyways, last night I'm out, eight o'clock hour, pretty dark outside. Got music in. I'm running, and I had an encounter with a deer. And it was a giant deer, and this thing was staring at me, and I didn't notice it. I probably got within a couple feet of this deer. Like, I was about to run by it. I had music in. And then I, like, look up, and I I almost had a heart attack. Like, I seriously, like a deer, so friendly, right? Gorgeous animal. I literally almost had a heart attack because I'm just like, they scare me. Like, animals just scare me. And then this happened again. Two deer last night, uh, multiple different times uh, over in Beaverton. The first one was right, pretty much right on the sidewalk. Uh, and I was like trying to like, I stopped and then I was kind of like looking at cars and I was like, do you guys see this? This is crazy. And then the other one was like in a trail. But uh, it, my my peeve is that I wanted to tell that story and it's just like, I'm just snakes and just every animal. It just terrifies me and it's going to hold me back. You know, like I'm always going to be kind of a little bit paranoid about seeing some kind of animal. 
What? Where do you think that stems from? I don't know. I think it's my fear of... I don't know. I'm not going to say that. I'm definitely afraid, afraid of, snakes, of snakes. But that wouldn't have anything to do with the deer. Yeah. I'm just kind of like a... Uh, I don't know. I'm a paranoid person. and like, Are so, you anxious in general? Do you find that yes. like, you're kind of anxious? Yes. Like today, yeah. yeah. Like today I'm running the board and I, I don't always run the board. Like my heart rate's probably been a little bit higher today just because there's a lot, a lot, of thing, a lot more things to do than my usual job, right? So yeah, I, I would definitely classify myself as an anxious person. It's funny because when somebody like you know you're not like new on the board but i know that you're focused so i try to leave you alone like you know during the breaks i try not to talk to you because i figure you're working on stuff or whatnot and i don't want to distract you but um anxious like maybe you need to watch bambi man bambi's not gonna hurt you man i know the the deer was gorgeous and i like i pretty much was there for a minute like other runners kind of came by and i was like look how cool this is and i once i saw it and was around it i thought it was i was kind of marveling at it but just like that first reaction when i saw the deer just it scared because it could have been a bear you know it could have been a cougar (laughs) right (laughs) yeah it could have been a the loch ness monster if you if you're anxious enough but it also could be nothing I know. So I don't know, yeah. like, just, I don't know, you put yourself in my shoes. I kind of, like, look down a little bit when I'm running, and so I see in the corner of my eyes, just, it was a big deer. Like, it's this, like, big animal. So it just, like, of course right. I'm going to, like, have a, a quick little heart attack. I'm just going to give you a little quote that I heard this week that might help some listener out, maybe you. Uh, Worry doesn't help tomorrow's troubles, but it does ruin today's happiness. Mm. How about that? Yeah, I like that. Peter Sampson. What bugs you? What's uh, what's your peeve? Man, right now it's Amazon grocery packaging. I'm a, I'm a lazy guy. I don't like to go grocery shopping. I have my groceries delivered. And if you don't do that, it's certainly the way to go. And, and uh, coming in late today, working on this show, I had some groceries delivered. And it was unbearable trying to get through this packaging. I understand. Look, groceries, items. They go in a paper bag. You seal it up because it's being delivered. You set it on the porch. But there is, it was like a Russian nesting doll of food items trying to get my cookies and cream ice cream. It was like breaking into Fort Knox or, you know, being 16 and trying to get a girl's bra undone or something like that. It was unbelievable. And I think about the amount of uh, of waste, the amount of uh, cardboard oh, yeah. and paper waste that goes into that. It's got me rethinking my whole idea. No, I like that. I like that you're thinking about that stuff, and and that bothers me too because I am the uh, I'm the recycling slash trash guy hmm. at our house, and Anna is a uh, notorious Amazon uh, consumer. Like she is keeping that Amazon stock afloat, uh, and I, I should do like Sebastian Maniscalco, the comedian, does this thing where he yeah, he just started it during the pandemic because his wife orders stuff on Amazon. He he sets the video camera up and he says, well, what did my wife order today? And he opens it <laughs> and then he talks about what's in the package. I could do that. But what I what I noticed, Peter, is like they will ship like, you know, maybe she buys, uh, you know, dishwasher detergent pods or whatever they are. And the box comes. It's this huge box and it's got bubble wrap in it. And there's this this little package inside this huge box. And I'm like, what are they doing? Why are they shipping this in this giant box? Yeah, it's with absurd. All this bubble wrap like nothing's gonna happen to these pods i don't get it yeah it it makes no sense whatsoever i mean unless they have some sort of deal where they're getting a kickback from the cardboard uh you know industry or something like that you know you can't fight big cardboard it's absurd they they gotta chill it out at least smaller packaging right yeah they should what do you got coming up on the pulse
Yeah, I mean, a lot of sports news coming in for a mid-August day. Fernando Tatis, we'll talk about that, what that means for his legacy, and, and honestly, just the Padres on the field. Uh, we're going to preview Oregon State football. We're continuing our Pack 12 team previews. Of course, it's Friday. We're going to responsibly have an adult beverage uh, with our listeners. I'll ask what's in their glass. And I don't know if it's too early to look at over-unders. Some of the Blazers' uh, win totals are out. I want to take a look at that and see if Vegas maybe knows something we don't. Oh, I like that. I, uh, I wrote today about sort of the non-conference matchups. And, you know, I know that I teased earlier in the show, uh, Oregon and Oregon State, that, you know, what are the big things that are on their schedule? I'll leave the Oregon State preview to you, but I just want to talk about Oregon State's first three weeks and Oregon's first three weeks. Let's look at Oregon. They're opening at Georgia, probably a loss. Then they get uh, Eastern Washington in what should be a win. I feel like the most important game for Oregon is not the opener. It's week three against BYU at home. It's the difference between being one and two or, or two and one entering conference play for Dan Lanning. And I know we're going to talk a lot about Georgia. I will be at that Georgia game. But BYU was 5-0 and last year against the Pac-12. Pac-12 had a dismal non-conference record. They went 3-9 and against the other uh, Power 5 uh, conferences. Um, Kalani Sataki and BYU obviously crushed the Pac-12 last year. San Diego State was 2-0 and against the Pac-12 last year. Uh, and uh, I think that game against BYU is, is the most important game of the first three weeks of the season for Oregon. Forget Georgia. Like, you know, if Oregon plays well in the Georgia game, great. It bodes well for week three. But week three is the game that Dan Lanning's got to win, and it's a tough one. And for Oregon State, it's a little bit the opposite for me. I kind of feel like their their biggest game is the opener. It's Boise State in week one at home and Reeser Stadium. And I think that game is going to go a long way towards telling us if this is a team we can trust to start the season 3-0 and and what's Chance Nolan going to be like. And anybody who is down there watching practice in Corvallis is coming back and telling me, hey, the defense looks really good. Hey, the defense is great. Hey, the defense, they got some guys there. They got some new bodies there. Like, they, you know, Defensive line will always be a question, I think, for a program like Oregon State because they're going to get, um, you know, the the best defensive linemen are going to go to the teams that are true contenders in the Pac-12 conference, and until Oregon State gets there, I don't think they're going to get those guys. But I think uh, they've got Omar Spates. They've got a defensive backfield with Alex Austin and Jaden Grant that's really talented. Um, at look out. I think, you know, we're going to see what Trent Bray's defense can do, but I think Oregon State – in that opener, the most important game for them is the Boise State game because if they beat Boise State at home, it sets up nicely for them to go to Fresno State in Week 2 and win at Bulldog Stadium, which is a tough place to play. And Jeff Tedford and, and Jake Hayner being over there on that Fresno State sideline are not easy tasks for Oregon State. But uh, Montana State in Week 3 at Providence Park is a W for Oregon State if they can win those first two games. So... I think for Oregon State that like it's the opposite. Oregon's biggest test is week three. I think Oregon State's test is week one because I think if they can beat Boy- Boise State at home, it just sets up nicely for them. If they lose to Boise State at home, it could you know they could have a one and two preseason their non conference schedule. What do you guys think about that as a theory? Like Georgia not being Oregon's most important game of the first three weeks. 
Yeah, no, I think uh, there was a caller yesterday on this show that made a really smart point. Like, you know, if you're the Pac-12, you can't have BYU beating your second or third best team once again uh, like it did last year. And, you know, you're probably going to lose that Georgia game. And so you're going to be probably one and one. Um, and then you can't go one and two. Once you're one and two, I mean, Utah kind of overcame it last year, but for the most part, like you can't just climb back into national relevance. You'd really have to run the table. You'd really have to get your stuff together in order to uh, to have a good season. So you have to be two and one. Oregon's got the second longest home winning streak um, in the entire country. Clemson's number one, but Oregon hasn't lost since that Stanford game back in 2018 at Autzen. So uh, pretty confident, although I'm looking at just BYU, their season this year, their team this year, and they 11 starters back on defense, all 11, and then eight on offense, and they got some good transfers. So that one's going to be tough, and I think uh, that's going to be a game to be at for sure. I'm going to try to get down there for that one. That's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, Kalani Sataki's a good coach too, and you know I know Oregon interviewed him, and he did uh, he did not get the job. I also think he he wasn't really in it to get the job. I think I think Kalani Sataki wanted job security at BYU, and I think that's why he um, interviewed for the job in the first place. But yeah, you're right; they got a ton back. They're tough. I just kind of think Oregon will have seen Georgia by the time they get to Week Three. They will uh, have settled some things down. They're at home. They're the Pac-12 team, for crying out loud. BYU um, is, you know, obviously last year, BYU had a tremendous year. But let's look at BYU's 5-0 and last year. Um, you know, the last win, the fifth win, came against USC at a time which USC wasn't uh, flying high. They barely got by Washington State 21-19 in the middle of the season. They had another win over Arizona, which Arizona was bad last year. They beat Arizona State. They were not good. The win that I thought was their best win came in Week 2. It was BYU over Utah in Week 2. But, um, you know, let's see what Oregon does with them. Leave it here for the Pulse and Peter Sampson. I want everybody to have a great weekend. The bald-faced truth not here for a long time. Just a good time.